Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to listen to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Pop crazy youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast where it's always half past seven on a Thursday night. I'm your host, Al Needham, and with me today are Taylor Parks. Afternoon. And the long overdue return of Sarah B. Hello. People, tell me now of the pop and the interesting things that have occurred of late. I, uh, what have I done that's pop and interesting? Um, I went to see Steve Davis's psychedelic band, The Utopia Strong, a couple of weeks ago. That's Steve Davis. That's Steve Davis. No! Yeah. Good God, what's that like? Uh, really good. Yeah, it's great. It's, um, it's him and a couple of other blokes and, uh, yeah, it's really brilliant. He has been a sort of, um, psychedelic and drone DJ for a few, a few years now. He's really great. I've met him a few times. He's a he's a top bloke. He wasn't backed by the matchroom mob. I no. <laughs> uh, no, I I had a break from football. I was so disillusioned with football. Yeah. I barely followed it for most of the past year. So this season I'm back and I'm I've been catching up on oh, YouTube yeah. and podcasts and TV, which just means hearing really quite a lot of adverts for Bet365. Right, Ray Winston trying to remember how to sound rough assed and I can't stand it anymore. It's every every seven minutes. Bet three six five, (laughs) fucking hell! Uh, (laughs) Please gamble responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. Now then, pop crazy youngsters, you know the first order of business. We give a shout out to the latest batch of people who dob the subs into the chart music G-string. The $5 people this month include Andy Ward, Riley Briggs, Chris Durbin, Ash Preston, Barry Jones, Gord Masson, Marcus Jack, Darren Lamb, Nick Horn, David Montgomery, Stephen Dinsdale, Victoria Keastley, Simon Smith, Eileen McConnell, David Owen, Clive Parre, Rob Moore, Vic Summers, Miles Jackson, David Gregson, Mike Thompson, and, in the words of Tony Blackburn, someone who chooses to call themselves Leicester is better than Nottingham. (laughs) Oh, I'm such a slag. (laughs) And the $3 people, they are Douglas Hartley, Mark Hunter, Steve Mishkin, Mark Lund, Mark Thompson and David Burnage. And let us not forget Daniel Sullivan and Fabio De Paula because they whack their donations right up. Oh, 
Those lovely people, eh? They're so Please lovely. Please gamble responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> and as well as being able to sleep at night knowing they've done the right thing by chart music, those people have voted on the latest chart music top ten. Yeah. Hit the music! We've said goodbye this week to the Queen's Fanner, Gug City Slaggers, the Whiff of the Catamite, and Clitz Richard, which means it's two up, three down, a re-entry, and four new entries. Back in at number 10, Chicken Steven. Down three places from number 6 to number 9, Sarah B and Rakim. Last week's number one has dropped all the way down to number eight. Man to man meet Al Needham. Up two places this week and still pumping away at number seven. Here comes Jism. Last week's number seven. This week's number six. Your dog mates. Down from number five to number three. It could only be... Bummer Dog. A new entry at number four for Neil Cougar Kulkane. <laughs> Straight in at number three, Lesbian Door Factory. <laughs> so close for this week's number two, Dave D. Creepy Twat and Cunt, which means... Britain's number one. It was always meant to be the highest new entress, straight in at number one, Jeff Sex. Oh man, what a chart that is. Yeah. Isn't it? It's like a new era of the chart music top ten. <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, Jeff Sex. I don't know what you've got in your mind, but to me, he's clearly a piss poor British response to Prince, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah instead of a raincoat and stockings, he's, he wears a car coat over some swimming trunks. <laughs> and, and he's got a guitar shaped like a fanet. Yeah. He's sort of in that area, yeah. uh, but he, he, he just gets it a bit too wrong and a bit too obvious. And, and wellies instead of like, you know, mm. yeah. yeah or a, he's or like a the... pair of white terry toweling socks with a, a little yeah. thin red and blue band around the ankle. Yeah, definitely, yeah. He, he, he reminds me of those blokes who used to pop up in the uh, Reader's Wives, uh, that one page called Something for the Ladies. <laughs> Where they just have some twat standing by a rail track with his cock out all kind of like squatting down and his <laughs> yeah. knackers dangling over yeah. an open toolbox or something. And it was like, oh, this will this will satisfy them. Yeah, those blokes for about 50, you've got massive shoulders and arms. Uh, yes. But also a huge beer gut. Because like, they lift weights, but they don't do no cardio. <laughs> yeah, but those blokes in the uh, Something for the Ladies, it was it was like, you know, if your missus had found your wank mag, it's as if you could just open it up and go, look, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, something else going on in chart music world. David Stubbs, the author of Future Days and Mars by 1980, has agreed to avail himself and make himself available to you, the pop-crazed youngsters, for a special Q&A, just me and him. So, you know, if you've got any burning questions about extended flute solos or what it was like to work at Melody Maker in the 90s, or even if you want to ask me some questions, all you've got to do is dash off an email to chartmusicpodcast at gmail.com and we will set about your questions with glee. Got loads in already, some, some really good ones. Ooh. Do they all say, what's Sarah B really like? 
(laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm really like. There's no mystery, unfortunately. So don't forget, pop craze youngsters, if you love chart music, there's no romance without finance. So go to patreon.com slash chart music and give us money now. Now. Thank you. Now then, pop craze youngsters, we've reached part number four of our Critics' Choice season, and this time the spotlight shines upon Ms. Sarah B, mm-hmm. and she has selected... 8th of November, 1984. Ooh, Ooh. Sarah, to use the title of the Bronsky Beat single, which has dropped four places from number 27 to number 31 in this week's chart, why? <laughs> because I'm a fucking sadist. Apparently, and, and yeah. probably also a masochist. Because it was going to be an 80s one, obviously. Um, mm. I sort of toyed with 86 or 88, but I just instinctively went for 1984. Because that's like yeah. year, that's year zero for me in terms of like my awareness of music and, and pop culture. Um, and this particular episode, it's like... Because I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can find the most 1984 episode as opposed to mm. the best like even the number 1984 has just got this almost synesthetic quality to me it's like it mm. smells of damp shopping center floors and the warm fluff from fan heaters you know <laughs> it's got that kind of spine tingling hind brain prickle for me mm. but yeah this is like you know when you're sort of six years old and everything is just going in sort of unfiltered and you start to respond yeah. to it purely and honestly and you start to kind of coagulate your gooey, unformed self around this input. Yeah. So, yeah, there's kind of loads of that stuff in it for me, but also stuff that I'd uh, forgotten, stuff that I don't remember at all, stuff that I love, stuff that I absolutely can't abide. You know, I thought, you know, there's there's enough to go at in this one. Taylor, we already discussed 1984 as being the most 80s year of the 80s. It's up there and it's very mm. special to me because I was in a sort of later stage of the same process that Sarah was mm. just talking about. This was the year I got really into modern music as something to follow and observe as a whole. Yeah. You know, this was uh, this was the summer I started buying Smash It and right. uh, actually listening consciously to Radio 1 rather than... Radio 1, or in my house, more often Radio 2, being a sort of fuzzy, ambient presence, you know, out of which the occasional record would emerge and grab my attention for better or for worse. So suddenly I knew which records had been released and which were going up the charts, which were going down the charts, and which had flopped. And I knew the names of all the failures as well as the success stories. And although even at that age I understood the difference between fashion and style... I sort of knew what was trendy and what was what wasn't, even though it didn't have much to do with me. So I've got this incredibly deep and fundamental familiarity with all of the trends and the the tokens and and tat of nineteen eighty four and yeah. the mid eighties generally. In terms of pop music, especially, like you know, I see words spelt out with each letter in a different color and a different typeface mm. and uh, zigzag lines as visual punctuation. And just coloured blobs and shapes dotted haphazardly oh. around, like the terror mm. of empty white space. And the sound yeah. of the charts in 1984 is something I feel like I know really deeply. It's really very smooth and very thin, with all the early 80s twists uh, ironed out of it. And I didn't like it then, 
and I don't like it much now, but it's like a brother or a hometown. You don't have to like it, right? It's it's just there. It's mm. always with you and it stays with you. So even now, that whole period, I know who drum theatre were, you know. Right. I remember Contract of the Heart by Spelt Like This and the fiasco that was the Roaring Boys, you know. And none of it is... <laughs> The slightest bit of use, except that it enables me to tut at young people who think the 80s were awesome just because yes. they weren't there. Although, yes. to be honest, even that's of limited use now because I don't really come into contact with young people anymore because I tend to stay away because I've reached that time in life where the sight of young men makes me want to shoot them and <laughs> the sight of young women makes me want to shoot myself. So it's not that relaxing oh. out there. But yeah, 1984, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in my element. Let's have at it. In the news this week, Ronald Reagan has just crucified Walter Mondale in the US presidential election. The Sandinistas win the Nicaraguan general election. The funeral of Indira Gandhi has just been seen live on the telly in the UK, apart from the bit where her son cracks her skull open with a big stick and sets her on fire. Do you remember that? I remember watching that with my mum. She gave me some very strange looks. No. 800 miners have returned to work this week as the strike begins to break down. Hundreds of thousands of pounds have already been raised for the Ethiopian famine appeal after the Michael Burke report on BBC News a fortnight ago. 30 coppers are drafted in to arrest George Best after he lamps one of them. Che Bly is rescued after 19 hours of bobbing about off Cape Horn when his trimaran capsizes during attempt to break the New York to San Francisco record. Ian St. John gets done for drink driving in Edinburgh after he asks a police officer if he knows who he is. But the big news this week on the cover of today's Liverpool Echo, Mum's Rocket for Naked Rockers. Teenagers as young as 15 have bought tickets for a Liverpool University concert tonight by a heavy metal rock band who perform in the nude. The Metal Donut Band are appearing at the Sphinx Bar, run by the Student Union, and promotional material advertising the group boasts how they cavort naked on stage. The naked truth about the show came to light when Mrs Mary McCarthy's 15-year-old son came home with £1 tickets, posters and promotional leaflets. Student Union Bursar and Permanent Secretary Mr John Parry said no one would be allowed in under 18 years of age. He added, we make inquiries into the activities of the bands we book and while it is true the group perform with no clothes on, they do put paint on themselves. <laughs> so there we go. That If it's a blue cock, it doesn't count, does it? Yeah. If there's one thing people hated in the 80s, it's nature. Mm. I think that was the best and worst thing about that decade. And obviously I looked into this a bit more. Uh, they're not a heavy metal band at all. They uh, they appear to be an industrial dance band from Leicester. Um, and, and one of them's now a chemistry teacher. <laughs> On the cover of the NME this week, Annie Lennox. On the cover of Smash Hits, Nick Haywood is in there interviewing Fergal Sharkey. 
The number one LP in the UK is Give My Regards to Broad Street by Paul McCartney. Yes. Over in the USA, the number one single is Wake Me Up Before You Go Go by Wham. And the number one LP was Purple Rain by Prince and the Revolution. So me dears, what were we doing in November of 1984? Um, I was living in a small terrace house with my mum um without proper heating but we did have one of those amazingly dangerous gas fires in the kitchen uh, and incredibly steep stairs just hazards at every turn really um Mm. i had an attic bedroom that had uh, didn't have a door but it had its own little tiny staircase so that was nice um and i was developing a very healthy uh fire phobia thanks to all of the uh endless public information films and uh adverts about um you know this is what happens if you leave a cigarette on a um, on on the arm on the arm of a sofa, and within a minute yeah. you're dead. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm... so you you went outside for a fag at the age of six, then? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, just to just just to say fuck the man. No, I mean um, I was also I was short sighted, but I didn't know it yet. Um, right. So like I used to lie. You just bed... thought that's what the world looked like. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, it's just all slightly smudgy. But I used to because the the landing light would be on and. Um, the uh, so I could see the light coming up the stairs at night from my bed, and I would look at it and I would just go, "I wonder if that's fire. What if that's fire?" Oh no! Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I just I just kind of lived with with fire in my house all the time, really, and uh, you know, but I couldn't like strike a match. I had to um, obviously, you know, you can't be doing that when you're six, but I couldn't do it until I was like in my twenties. Because I just, I didn't, well, I was like, ah, it's too bad. Fireworks, I fucking hated fireworks. Can't hold a sparkler still. I just, I, oh. you know, it's, uh, that's what the 80s, that's what the 80s did to my brain. But, um, you know, it also, I'm kind of grateful for it as well because it, it sort of gives you that sort of weird horror sensibility. And I'm now like, you know, I, I love the horrorist stuff you can find. And that's probably where it started. Mm. Oh, yeah, and we had uh, two guinea pigs, which shortly became five guinea pigs. You know, Good sort Lord. of gremlinsy gone away, um, <laughs> and yeah, it was it was all right. Um, we didn't have a lot and stuff, but we had we had a radio and we had a little black tape deck spattered with white paint from decorating and happy enough. Yeah, you've already said that this is this was a year zero for you and music. So who who grabbed you first? Well, you know, it was uh, my mum made mixtapes, and I know that she had this one particular uh. one, which is totally which I probably talked about before, which is just kind of. Um, you know, um, I can't like reel off the track list for you now, but it's definitely there's there's uh, a couple of tracks that are in, in this episode that were on that mixtape. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously Michael Jackson, uh, Madonna, um, just and yeah, what what my filter was, was like what was on what was on Radio One, I think, and which my mum mm. would listen to and what was on what was on Top of the Pops. And I guess what was in the charts, that was that was what I got. Yeah. And I suppose it did really instill in me this kind of, um, this thing about glorious isolation of a, of a single, you know, and it has to stand alone and, and a sort of album was sort of an afterthought, really. Yeah. And I guess there's kind of uh, what Swells always used to say about, you know, you'd say, what's the best Clash album or whatever, it'd be like, well, the best of the Clash, obviously. And what's the best, you know, mm. that's kind of still my brain. There's something about, and obviously kind of singles now are not what they were because it's like, because of streaming and Spotify and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I do, I do listen to albums and I do love albums but there's just something about a single it's like you have to prove yourself and put everything about yourself into three minutes or four minutes uh, all i can remember is uh 
no central eating, waking up on a school morning, seeing plumes of cold breath yeah. <laughs> going up into the air and having to psych myself up with a countdown to get out of bed. <laughs> You know, ten, nine, eight, so ah! <laughs> and then you know, like the paras just running into the bathroom. What colour was your bathroom suite? You know, that's something I should remember. Yeah. But I don't, I haven't got a clue. Must be white then. No, no. Was it avocado? No, it may have been avocado or, or coral. Oh. Uh, or cornflower blue or something like that. Mine was dark brown. Uh, oh nice. Like chocolate yeah, that brown. Was, yeah, Never chocolate. Brown with chocolate brown. <laughs> yeah, sort of like Labrador colour. It really worked, actually. It was I. I would. Uh, I would have that again. You probably can't actually get. I've just had my bathroom done actually, and it is very boring, white and green. But um, you know, yeah, sort of chocolate brown. You probably get. You'd probably get sick of it after a bit. But I remember it being quite quite nice at the time. Did you have gold taps? <laughs> my ex-parents used to have a chocolate brown bog, and I used to hate it because it's like I can't see if they've cleaned it or not. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's handy. I'm going to assume they had but it was still lingering at the back of my mind. <laughs> I always thought of them as pure class, though. Chocolate brown bathroom suites. Anything in sort of dark brown. In those, and it stayed with me, like all this rubbish. Even now I think of brown as a classy colour. <laughs> no, it gets, well, gets a lot of shit, does brown. But, mm. you know, it's actually all right. I'd started sixth form a couple of months ago to retake my O-levels, and I already fucking hated it. Everyone was into either Wham!, or U2, or UB40. And I'd still got me raincoat on that I got signed by Paul Weller a few months previous, and, and possibly me jam shoes as well. And I just look back and go, oh, man, jam shoes in 1984. Yeah. But right about this point, I start thinking, well, why am I going here anyway? And I, I just start bunking off and thinking, oh, shit, no one's calling me out about it. I'll do it a bit more. And so I'd sneak out in the morning and then come back, and all I'd do is read or... Yeah, read. I'd, ju- I'd just sit down and read and listen to music and uh, educate myself. Aww. Yeah, you're probably. <laughs> yeah, just went through loads of back issues of 2000 AD, music press. Uh, round about this time, I actually started up my own fanzine, uh, but it was about American football. So, What was it called? It was called Third and Long. Did, okay. did two issues of it. Uh, the second issue, I took practically every single issue I printed out on a bander machine from the local community centre, took them down to Wembley for a, a pre-season friendly game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Chicago Bears and uh, got them confiscated immediately by staff on the fucking <sighs> gates. So, yeah. Thank- Why? Yeah. On what logic? Oh, that I was selling something that wasn't official licensed Wembley or NFL yeah. stuff. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, called, it's called American football for a reason. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, that was me. Music-wise, I'm still, I'm well, I'm still into the Style Council, uh, but I'm 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 buying up loads of James Brown stuff. The first purchase I ever made from Rob's Records, which I've mentioned before, was uh, Summer Breeze, and so I'd I'd cross that line, you know. In the eighties, buying old stuff or cheap stuff was massively frowned upon, but you know, once you've done it, you, there's no turning back. Oh, nice. Anyway, as we've started doing of late, Pop Craze Youngsters, it is now time to dig in the crates and pull out a copy of a music mag from the week we're doing. And this time, we're leafing through the November the 3rd issue of Melody Maker. On the cover, Morrissey mm. in a black and white dog tooth jacket doffing his hat at us. Isn't that nice? 
No. In the news, the giants of pop are gearing up for Christmas, with Spandau Bali and Culture Club announcing six dates each at Wembley Arena next month. Tickets range from £6.50 to £8.50. Culture Club are also about to air their forthcoming LP, Waking Up With The House On Fire, on a special Radio 1 show where they'll get to crow about their success to Mike Smith. There are also Christmas cash-ins for Howard Jones and Nick Kershaw, while Lou Reed has announced he's flying in for two dates at the Brixton Academy in mid-December. The speculation that Factory Records is on its arse, as Quando Quango and 52nd Street have left the label and signed with majors. ABC are back, minus half their original lineup, and with the addition of Eden and David Uritu, making them look like a prototype delight. They've just released How to Be a Millionaire this week. Andy Anderson has vacated the drum stall of The Cure at the end of their tour of Japan and he's been temporarily replaced by Vince Ely of the Psychedelic Furs. Gary Holton, formerly of the Heavy Metal Kids and currently playing Wayne in Alvide's Aim Pet and doing the theme tune to Murphy's Mob, has put out a new single. It's an updated version of Catch a Falling Star and it's been produced by Jimmy Lee of Slade. Or you can just imagine it, can't you? Mark King of Level 42 has a new best mate, Frank Bruno. Mark has been invited to watch Frank train, and Frank's been invited to hang about backstage at a Level 42 gig whenever he fancies it. Over in America, MTV are considering the lifting of their ban on the Two Tribes video now that the US election is over, and Woolworths have censored out obscenities on the inner sleeve of the just-released Welcome to the Pleasure Dome LP. There's a big photo of Big Country posing backstage with their biggest fan, Charlie Nicholas of Arsenal, with full-on Billy the Fish bouffant. And a Lionel Richie gig was interrupted last week when his trousers started smouldering on stage. (laughs) Apparently said trues hadn't been dry cleaned properly and the cleaning fluid which remained on them reacted to the stage lights. (laughs) Inside the paper there's a centre spread interview with Morrissey but some bastard pulled it out of the copy I bought off eBay and presumably stuck it on his wall to masturbate over. It's the one where he said that the sorrow of the Brighton bombing was that Margaret Thatcher survived it, but he was quite happy that the IRA were now selecting proper targets. Fucking hell, one rule for Jeremy Corbyn, another one for Morrissey, eh? (laughs) He also talks about doing Top of the Pops, which he finds, quote, great fun. They always give us a semi-royal reception. I know I should spit on the old idea of Top of the Pops, but I can't. I think the groups that criticise Top of the Pops are those that probably know they'll never get on there. Yeah, they're just jealous. (laughs) Lloyd Cole is interviewed by Helen Fitzgerald in a Glasgow wine bar, sipping lager from a can, and tells us that his dad was a roadie for Alvin Stardust and gave him a lift in a camper van to perform My Kukachu on Top of the Pops. Swan's Way are about to release their debut LP and talk to Steve Sutherland about not wearing old suits anymore now that they've got a clothing budget and generally not realising that their time has already passed. Oh, and Kim Wilde pops up in Shrink Wrap, the Q&A section, and says that leather is boring, 
Free Man in Paris by Joni Mitchell is really about Mickey most. We shouldn't blame Margaret Thatcher for the country going to shit and the IRA are murderers. Mickey most? Yes. Does she expand on that at all? No, unfortunately. He is the UK David Geffen. Yes. So... Yeah. I wonder which Joni Mitchell song was about Tony Ash, <laughs> Derek Hobson. Yeah. Single reviews. I don't know, because they were part of the missing four pages of the copy I have, which is a shame because they were done that week by Fergal Sharkey. But in the issue of Smash Hits that came out on this very day, Neil Tennant is minding the shop. His single of the fortnight is Rock the Box by Sylvester, which is, quote, an extraordinary comeback which has nicked every electro cliche to create an irresistible dance record. He berates him for his lack of UK geographical knowledge, however, when he says that the people all over Great Britain are rocking the box from Liverpool to Wales, which is a distance of about 20 miles. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but you got a, you got a Chester, mm. so you just can't escape Sylvester. No. <laughs> <laughs> however, it's a coat down for the medal song by Culture Club, which is their first Duff single since I'm Afraid of Me, and sounds like one of Lionel Richie's cast-offs, and How to Be a Millionaire by ABC, which sounds to him like a weak New York dance record. You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive is given equally short shrift. According to Tennant, they live in the shadow of divine, and although they've employed the services of the people who produced You Think You're a Man, Stock Aiken Waterman, there isn't the screaming big tune that's the whole point of a high-energy record. Hmm... What would Neil Tennant know about making hit records, eh? (laughs) It's a thumbs up for Blasphemous Rumours by Depeche Mode, Since Yesterday by Strawberry Switchblade, and Half a Minute by Matt Bianco, but no love whatsoever for The Boys from the County Hell by The Pogues, Sex Crime, 1984, by The Arrhythmics, Berserker by Gary Newman, or Watching You by Shack Attack. And he describes I, Brother B by Shockheaded Peters as a sinister song about that ever-popular subject in pop songs these days, gay sex. According to Tennant, not even John Peel will play it. Uh, what would Neil Tennant know about gay sex? <laughs> in the LP reviews, we go back to the Melody Maker, and the big review this week is given over to Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Franke. Lyndon Barber feels that it's an attempt to update Sergeant Pepper that hasn't come off, and The Power of Love is a rancid ballad and Spandau with knobs on. He signs off with MM Say, Frankie Singles Yes, Double Albums No. So easy to be a music journalist. <laughs> yes. Julian Lennon's debut LP, Velot, is treated kindly by Colin Irwin. He points out that the lead-off single, Too Late for Goodbyes, is one of the weakest tracks on the LP. It's an agreeable but flyweight pop album, and it shouldn't be too long before he comes up with something far better. Stops. Looks at watch. (laughs) Vermin in Ermin by Mark Almond is welcomed with open arms by Mr Irwin, who says that Mark sounds younger, (laughs) brighter and more optimistic. The LP is simply bursting with sharp, memorable melodies and the sense of theatre is as virile as ever. 
It's also a thumbs up for The Strange Idol Pattern and other short stories by Felt. Really? Sweet 16, the greatest hits compilation by Sweet. And A Scandal in oh. Bohemia by The Jazz Butcher. A thumbs midward for Microphonies by Cabaret Voltaire. And Acid Bath by Alien Sex Fiend is described <laughs> as turgid dross. Yeah, you just you write that, get drunk, and then get an all expenses paid week in America. Oh, Taylor Lee, company Mix. money. <laughs> yeah. We're the, too late. The gig guide. Well, David could have seen the truth at the Electric Ballroom, an anti-heroin concert at the Hippodrome featuring the Boomtown Rats and the Glitter Band. I'd rather take heroin. Depeche Mode at Hammersmith Odeon, or Rent Boys Inc at the Kensington Ad Lib but probably didn't. Taylor could have checked out Yip Yip Coyote at Snobs, <laughs> Man of War at the Birmingham Odeon, Goats Don't Shave at the Railway, <laughs> Lords of the New Church at the Tin Can Club, or Sade at the Odeon. Simon yes. could have nipped out to Cardiff to see The Fall at the New Ocean Club, Johnny Cash at St David's Hall, or Just Bongo at Cardiff <laughs> University. Sarah could have sat on her mate's shoulders and put on a long raincoat to see Eddie and the Hot Rots at Leeds University, the UK subs at the whole Unity Club, gone back to Leeds University to see the opening date of Alison Moyer's UK tour, Attila the Stockbroker at Hull Spring Street Theatre, and back again to Leeds Uni to see Level 42 and possibly Frank Bruno. Neil could have investigated Shock Taboo at Lanchester Poly, ventured out to Wolverhampton to see Mike Reed performing a live sex show to Icicle Works at the Civic Hall, and then back to the Poly for New Model Armour. <laughs> and I could have seen Mark Holmond and the winning sinners at Rock City and fuck all else. A cultural desert. Mm, good names, though. Yeah, but I mean, fucking hell, I wasn't wrong at the time. No. Uh, yeah, I wasn't just like a miserable moaning kid, you know. I was right. I was right. It was a terrible time. I'm, sh- I'm sure you were also a miserable moaning kid, to be fair. Yeah, it goes without yeah. saying, but, you know, uh, th- with good reason. In the letters page, the recent furore about Melody Maker covering bummers like Duran Duran, which rose to a peak last <laughs> month where they published a centre-spread poster of Wham! refuses to die down. Sophia of Higher Tranmere tells us that she only bought Melody Maker for the interview centre-bred on Duran Duran, but is now a regular reader. The recent interview with Roddy Frame by Steve Sutherland didn't go down too well with Julia Wright of Dovid, who described it as pathetic. Interviewers have become far too big for their boots, she says. <laughs> Surely the whole point of Melody Maker is to give a truthful representation of the pop world and not to slant it with the writer's pretentious views as they're only competing with each other to write something radical and get themselves noticed. Ooh. Yeah, trying to make a name for themselves. Mm, yeah, drag us. <laughs> Krista Bean, the enormous of Petersfield Hans, is the latest contributor to the Ian McCulloch, Bono, who's more lush debate. While she contends that McCulloch has horrid, slobbery lips, <laughs> Bono has got the most divine buttocks I have ever seen. <laughs> Let's have more small men as sex symbols. Midjour, for example, she pleads. 
Jesus. And pieced off of Wolverhampton has a go at the bouncers at Birmingham Odeon for spoiling a recent big country gig. And Des Bowring of Bristol has a good laugh at Paul Weller's new haircut. So there we go, 54 pages, 45p. I never knew there was so much in it. Uh, it was a weird time for Melody Maker mm. because it was sort of a bit directionless and it was so far behind the enemy mm. in terms of circulation and in terms of just popular awareness. Yeah. Um, I used to get it occasionally around that time. This was before like David and Simon Reynolds and people like that had joined. Mm. No, it was horrendous. It was just really boozy and liggy mm. and sort of music businessy. You know what I mean? And there was always like loads of pages of gossip of pictures of their writers all pissed with their arm round, you know, Spandau Ballet's manager or something. Yeah. It was, uh, I don't really know what they thought they were doing. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One kicks off at 6am with CFAX AM. Then it's breakfast time with Nick Ross and Fern Britton. At five past nine, it's Taking Sides, the weekly Let's Have a Big Argument About Something show, which is simultaneously broadcast on Radio 4. Then it's half an hour of pages from CFAX before Play School, and then an hour of 40 minutes of more CFAX before News Afternoon, Regional News in Your Area, Pebble Mill at One, Finger Bobs, and then it's an hour of the Benson and Hedges Tennis Championships from Wembley Arena. The afternoon show sees Penny Juner and Patty Coldwell looking at homeopathic medicine. Then it's more regional news in your area, a repeat of play school, Banana Man, the quiz show Beat the Teacher, Godzilla, 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 and Godzuki. (laughs) John Craven's news round. And then Janet Ellis makes a multi-storey car park for your matchbox cars using corrugated paper and cornflake boxes. Then it's Henry's cat. And then Grange Hill learns that it might be merged with Rodney Bennett and Brookdale. Then it's the six o'clock news, regional news in your area. And they've just finished What Else? Tomorrow's World. Yeah. BBC Two starts at 9.20 with a school's programme splurge. Then it's half an hour of CFAX. Then it's part seven of Mind How You Go, the road safety series presented by Jingle Nons OBE. Then it's more schools programmes until five past three when BBC Two picks up the tennis for two and a half hours. Then New Summer Air. Then the 1971 Susan Penhaligon film Miracles Still Happen where she survives a plane crash over the Andes. They're half an hour into taking liberties about the activities of the police in the miners' strike. ITV begins at 6.25 with Good Morning Britain and then goes into schools programmes until noon where they give the youth dem the one-two punch of Buttercup Buskers and Mooncat. After the Sullivans, it's News at One, regional news in your area, then it's part one of Levka's Man, the Australian TV adaptation of the Hamandini's novel about an archaeologist in Greece. That's followed by Daytime with Sarah Kennedy, Take the High Road, Regional News in Your Area Again, The Young Doctors and then Children's ITV, presented this week by Bonnie Langford, which pumps out Buttercup Buskers again, Rubber Dub Dub, Stanley Bagshaw, First Post, the CITV Points of View, Murphy's Mob, Blockbusters, The News at 5.45, Crossroads, Regional News in Your Area, and they're two-thirds of the way into Emmerdale Farm. 
Meanwhile, Channel 4 has started off at half past two with The British at War, a compilation of propaganda films curated by Leslie Halliwell. Then it's Countdown, then the 1942 Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn war film Keeper of the Flame, The Battle of the Sexes is attended to for 10 minutes in Unicorn in the Garden, and they're 20 minutes into Channel 4 News. Sarah, you know the question I'm going to ask. Any of those programmes jumping out at you? I've got to say, even at that time, I thought Godzuki was a crock of shit. Yes. I see, I was developing some discrimination at this point. I was like, what? Okay, yeah, no, Godzilla, big, scary, cool. Um, who's who's that little fucker following him around? What the hell is this? It's like a kind of corgi lizard. Yeah, I was, you watch a Godzilla film and you think what this needs is is a reptilian scrappy do. <laughs> and the thing about that one is Godzilla's helping people. That's bollocks. Yeah, I forgot that. Smash up a country where I don't live, Godzilla. That's what I want. <laughs> All right, then, pop crazy youngsters. It is now time to go way back to November of 1984. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Truth. <laughs> It's 20 past 7 on November the 8th, 1984, and we are immediately introduced to our hosts, Richard Skinner and pig wanker general himself, Simon Bates. (laughs) Since we last covered him in Chart Music 42, Skinner has given up his weekday evening slot to Janice Long, so he's spending his Fridays presenting Roundtable, his Saturdays presenting Saturday Live, And, of last month, he's the new voice of the Sunday Top 40 show after Kid Jensen left to present the network chart. At some point later this month, he's going to interview Bob Geldof about the future of the Boomtown Rats, (laughs) only for Geldof to use the time to announce the formation of Band-Aid. more I think about it, the more that was a diversion technique by Geldof, wasn't it? It's like, oh, God, I've got to talk about my band that's on my arse. Um, 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 I know I'm going to do this instead. Yeah, I put nothing past that bastard. It's been bothering me for quite a while now, who Skinner reminds me of. And watching this episode, it just slapped me in the face. Uh, he, he's he's Jeffrey from Rainbow, isn't he? <laughs> isn't he just? Oh. These two, they're nobody's faves, are they? They're just... no. It's it's horrible actually. I I kind of I, I did experience a degree of regret um just, you know, <laughs> just watching this and seeing them. Um that they're, they're kind of they're, they're just a pair of like charmless spods really. Mm. For me like Janice Long and John Peel were probably the best pairing of this era. But the mm. the only thing you can say for them is that at least neither of them are Dave Lee Travis. Yes. Yeah, there is that. There is that. Bates is still the immovable object in the mid-morning slot, pumping out three hours of old music, celebrity birthdays, horoscopes and letters from sulky people who just can't move on from their crappy old relationships. They do look like you're going on a school trip somewhere and they're the teachers who are going to look after you for the day or make your life hell. Yeah, and they're trying, they're trying so hard to be cool. And it's like, look, you've just got to give it up. Mm. And you don't have... That's the thing when you're a kid. You don't really have it in yeah. in yourself to be able to communicate to a teacher who wants to be cool that that will never happen. Apart from laughing at them. Yeah. Yeah, throwing things. Yeah. We are 
live tonight from Television Centre in the studio. Eugene Wilde, Billy Ocean, stars. All and we also have a new number one tonight. It's exactly what 20 minutes past seven tonight. Here's never-ending song Lamal, the lady with Lamal over here, happens to be called Mandy, and she's a Spurs supporter. She sings quite well though. in an op-art blue and red jumper on a tote background immediately tells us that this episode of Top of the Pops is live and Bates in a black shirt with brown splodges and the collar turned up shaky style with a pinstripe grey and cream jacket and red trousers looks at his watch and confirms this while one of the kids pops up between them and gives a double peace sign He immediately demonstrates the liveness of it all by getting the first song title wrong (laughs) and then points out that one of the people on stage is a Tottenham Hotspur supporter as he introduces Neverending Story by Lamal. Yeah, he's a bit preoccupied with that woman, isn't he? He's like, uh, in a very peculiar way. I mean, so preoccupied he gets the title wrong as this super slick professional broadcaster so often does. (laughs) Never-ending song. Yeah, it's... He calls it. Yeah. He's thinking of the new Seekers, isn't he, there? (laughs) A never-ending song for you. (laughs) From now on, that's all I want to (laughs) do. I think he's just thinking of this woman from Tottenham who looks like she's part of a feminist theatre project with her yes. vertical hair. You imagine him, though, like in the bar beforehand, trying his luck. Do you know what I mean? Because he's obviously, he's been mm. chatting to her. He found out she's a Spurs supporter. Yeah. Imagine him, uh, hi, I'm uh, I'm Simon. Just <laughs> his glasses with the finger and thumb of one hand, you know. Big cartoon face. I've always taken an interest in uh, victims of urban deprivation. Because he can save her, he can spirit her away in his murk, get her away no, from well, these on his lesbians and street artists. Yeah, he's got <laughs> he's got visions of her sat there with him, sipping a flute of Chardonnay in Ooh. Harbinger's Country Club, like with her legs crossed neatly, like his own personal Eliza Doolittle or yeah. Sally Hemings. He's he's obviously just they've had a very one sided conversation, haven't they? In which, uh, he, which mostly involved Simon Bates talking about Simon Bates and and his yeah. preferences, um, because you know she's pretty, she doesn't really need to say anything, and he's showing an interest by going over and you know he's uh, discovered that she happens to be called Mandy and she's a Spurs supporter. She sings quite well though. He says it's like, hey, yeah. no one cares what you think about football, Simon Bates. But also, no. he's there's a little is he is he negging there? He's doing a little neg, isn't he? I'm assuming mm. you you are familiar with with nagging the um, not that either of you would ever stoop to it clearly, but it's a explain a, to the pop crazy youngsters. Sarah. It is a pickup artist technique where mm. basically, if you want to get a woman, you are slightly unpleasant to her, and you say negative. You you uh, you activate uh. her her self doubt. By uh, and and take control of it by just pointing out that you know this happened to me once. Um, I was at a wedding and I was next to the worst man ever, who I may have mentioned before. Um, and he told me that my dress looked cheap. Nice. And it's like, wow. Um, 
what the fuck and uh this didn't you know this this i don't know if that was negging or if he genuinely was just an asshole but it's like an attempt to or maybe your of... dress really was cheap sarah it was a nice dress fuck you okay right and now you've got to say now you see now you've got to pull it back and no actually now you leave me alone and then you come back and you say something nice and then i go oh he's nice after all yeah. and and i will submit to his will so I think that's what Simon Bates has been doing to Mandy. Oh, that sounds like so much fucking faff. Well, you know, women are humans. You can just talk to them. Anyway, um, yeah. but I mean... I I, I, don't know, I don't recall him saying anything about Chaz and Dave when he introduced them with his fucking Spurs scarf on. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I remember he went, he went, here's Chaz and Dave with Tottenham Hotspur, and then he went, way! <laughs> <laughs> but maybe he's just gone up to this woman and just said, hello... What football team do you support? Yeah, it's just, just, he likes to start a yeah. conversation. Yeah. Born in Wigan in 1958, Christopher Hamill spurned the opportunity to join his dad and brothers down the pit and began his career as a trainee hairdresser and winner of a talent competition at the Wigan Casino before moving down to London in the late 70s to join the group Brooks, which also featured a pre-Bucks fizz Mike Nolan. After a chance encounter with the club singer Polly Perkins, who would go on to be the bar manager in El Dorado, he was introduced to a theatrical agent who got him bookings in Panto in Swansea, Joseph in the Amazing Technical and Dreamcoat in Plymouth and Godspell at Westcliff-on-Sea. In the meantime, he made a doomed attempt to get into the 1979 Song for Europe competition. After landing one TV appearance on the gentle touch as a schoolboy who gets caught looking at a grot video by his mum, he focused his attention on music, getting signed to the independent label Angel, but was dropped when two singles flopped. After he made a bit of cash on the side by appearing on the cover of Photo Love Weekly in September of 1981, a clock shoe advert, and as an extra in the video for Stand and Deliver, which I've looked at and I can't see him at all, so... <laughs> Don't know about that. Yeah, but remember he's man of a hundred faces, Lamar. Yes. Because we've seen a couple of other things with him in where he's unrecognisable. He placed an advert in Melody Maker which read, Good-looking, talented singer, songwriter, frontman, looking for musicians to form what should be a successful band. Influencers Japan, Yazoo and Soft Cell, no Des O'Connor fans. <laughs> Very unfair on Des. Melody Maker has a lot to answer for in some ways, doesn't it? The advert was responded to by the Leighton Buzzard group Art Nouveau, who had placed their ad looking for a singer in Melody Maker a few weeks previously, which led to the former changing their name to Kajagoogoo and the latter changing his name to Lamal, an anagram of his surname. After putting together a demo, which was rejected by all major record labels, Lamar went back to his side job as a waiter at the Embassy Club in Old Bond Street, where he ended up serving Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran. While he endlessly topped up his glass with champagne, he talked Rhodes into taking a copy of the demo, and a few days later, Rhodes called back, said he really liked the band and would set them up with EMI. In January of 1983, the band put out their debut single, Too Shy. And thanks to the Duran Connection, a timely plug by Paul Gambaccini on his Channel 4 show, The Other Side of the Tracks, and Lamal and Nick Beggs' weird tonsoral decisions, it soared up the charts, 
getting to number one for two weeks in February of that year. I think rather a lot of people got a timely plug from Paul Gambaccini. Oh, Sarah! This time, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> the follow-up, Ooh to be R, got to number seven for two weeks in April of that year, but all was not well in Kajaland. And in August of 1983, two months after their third single, Hang On Now, only got to number 17, Lamal was sacked over the phone. Oh, I know. That's that's pretty brutal, isn't it, really? Mm. I mean, whatever you think of, you know, it, it's like over the phone, come on. Yeah. They would have the... done it in person, but they, they were too... No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As the non-football and British Bulldog playing side of the playground was cleft in twain over the split, Lamar immediately, A, signed a solo deal with EMI, B, linked up with Billy Gaff, Rod Stewart's manager in the 70s, and C, played up his misfortune to the media. His debut single, Only For Love, was immediately rushed out and got to number 16 in November of 1983. And when he flew out to Japan in early 1984 to perform the song at the Tokyo Music Festival, he was introduced to Giorgio Moroder, who had moved full-time into film soundtracks and offered him the title track for a German fantasy film, which at the time was the most expensive film ever produced outside the USA or USSR. This is the follow-up to Too Much Trouble, which stiffed at number 64 in June of this year. It was recorded with Beth Anderson, a singer from Kentucky who recorded her vocals in an American studio and is being covered for in this performance by Mandy Newton, one of Lamal's backing singers. After two weeks malingering around the low reaches of the charts, it scraped into the number 40 spot two weeks ago. Then it soared 20 places to number 20. And this week, it's jumped 10 places to number 10. So, me dears, the Kajagoogoo Lamar split, did, did that mean anything to you? Uh, not even slightly at all. Uh, my, uh, how oh, I, I know there's all this, all this trauma and drama going on. I was just happily oblivious to it. Um, poor, poor Limal, who was, who was absolutely devastated, but was putting a brave face now. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I didn't, I only... Or who played the fuck up <laughs> yeah. to it. Um, I do know, so I have, um, I didn't have it at the time, but I now have the very first, now that's what I call music compilation. And uh, Lamal right. is on it once with Only For Love and Kajaguga on it twice, once with him, with Too Shy, and once without him Ooh. with Big Apple. So, weirdly, because there was no other music in 1984, they had to, <laughs> had to put Kajaguga no. on twice. Well, I suppose, strictly speaking, it's a different lineup, but, oh, it's, yeah. But I had no idea. He's a baffling figure, Lamal. Because he seemed totally pointless even then, right? Like, he's not especially yes. good-looking. I mean, mm. he's quite rodent-like, isn't he? <laughs> like, when you see him full face, he looks like he's going to gnaw through the microphone cable. It's not... Just <laughs> give him a good swipe with a broom. Um, he's hardly got a great voice. His image was simultaneously really drab and clonishly trendy, you know, except with mm. what was... Mm considered even then an uncommonly shit hairstyle it's like if bruce foxton's seen a ghost um yeah. and he, he didn't even fit into his own band onto which he was bolted quite cynically as a potential teeny bop star when all the others were old proggers mm. from buckinghamshire and you know it's endlessly fascinating to look at people who amassed teen followings and work out what it was about them that appealed to so many people 
But with Lamal, it's a bit depressing because there's really nothing there at all. And you sort of have to no. conclude that people just saw a package that was being sold to them and bought it obediently, which is a, a conclusion you never really want to reach. Um because generally kids aren't so daft and there's usually something there even if you've missed it and it's not healthy to see people as blindly swallowing robot sheep you know it's not a good way to think um mm. and if that's all there was to the uh, to the teeny bop game there would be no risk attached and it would be embarrassingly easy mm. to win which it isn't but as with westlife you examine Lamar in very great detail and still turn up nothing of interest and it's really gloomy when that happens because pop should be a bit better than that you know and usually is mm. i mean the single most interesting thing about him is whether or not he really was having it off with paul gambaccini um i yes. mean he's, his story is no paul gambaccini had just helped the band out and Lamar needed yeah. somewhere to live and rented a room in uh, gambo's house and they were just chums, mm. which is possibly... I mean, just because they were both gay, it doesn't mean they couldn't keep their hands off each other automatically, you know. Yeah. But that's as far as you can care, because what does it say about a pop star that the most interesting thing about them is whether or not they were having it off with Paul Gambaccini? I mean, yeah. Although I've got yeah. a quote here from Paul Gambaccini talking about when he heard the Kajagoogoo demo tape... Um, because yeah. he, he was the one, he discovered them. And it says, uh, there are times in my life when I get the feeling, a state of excitement and bliss, so intense it possesses me. The feeling strikes instantly and without warning when I hear a song I love that I know is going to be a smash. Um, he's referring to Ooh to be R there with that quote, <laughs> which i really hope turns up on this uh, podcast at some point because that is a fucking weird record isn't it just mm. i remember being at school when kajagoogoo were knocking about you know we all talk about you know bummers like duran duran but i remember duran duran getting a, a little bit of a free pass because they were a little bit older and you know they could clearly play their instruments but i remember kajagoogoo getting all the shit yeah. despite the fact that they were much better musicians than duran duran because they were all jazz fusion mm. idiots, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, but it's, you know, they didn't have the tunes, did they, really, um, in the no. end? Well, they didn't have the beads, <laughs> Duran Duran. I think that's why they got it. I mean, Lamal, to me, was the one with the second maddest haircut in that band. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, by this point, Lamal's still playing up to the I was dumped, you know, motif. And uh, he gave an interview in Melody Maker in uh, in June of this year. It kind of reads like the uh, early 80s pop equivalent of the uh, Martin Bashir interview with Lady Di. He <laughs> says, my album sounds much more like Kajagoogoo than theirs does. What a boast. Mm. I'd said it before, but I'd like to remind everybody, I am the voice of that group. I am their identity. <laughs> I mean, what have they done since they got rid of me? Nothing. <laughs> I'm having the last laugh, believe me. <laughs> when he gets yeah. interviewed about their new direction, he says, it's like they've had two chances to prove themselves since then and they've fallen short. Their new single is struggling badly and no one likes them anymore since they've gone in for the big Christian thing. I mean, they've wrecked their image. Nobody wants them to be serious musos like they're trying to be now. They've been playing their image down completely, refusing to wear makeup for photos, and the kids just don't love them anymore. 
I met a girl the other day and she said she didn't think they were the same band now that Nick's got rid of his beads. <laughs> They've cut their own throats. They're playing into my hands, really. I'm going to have the last laugh. Jesus Christ. And uh, this is it. This is his, this is his last it, laugh. Well, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy it. It looks like he's aged about 20 years yeah. uh, in this performance. He's, and he's wearing a really shit leather jacket, matching trousers, a white T-shirt and a poppy. Quite right. Yeah, I'm going to stick up for the jacket, actually, because I've got one quite like that. It's like a but bigger. It's like a leather bathrobe with bat wing sleeves. It's fucking awesome. Mm. I think they all went, because they did get really inexplicably big, really inexplicably quickly, didn't they? And I think they all went a bit, they all went a bit mental. Yes. But, um, you know, the documentary where VH1 got them all back together and they all seemed all right. And Limal seemed yes. all right. I think he was probably, he was really young. And I think he just probably went a bit, you know, no, this was, you know, obviously this was, you got the raw shit before media training and people would just splurge whatever was on their minds. And I think, you know, it's like it's really painful, but he seemed he seemed to have got over it eventually. Like you know, thirty years later or whatever, and he seems you know, seems like an all right play. Oh, thunder! Um, but yeah, he's um, the the hair is 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 quite something. Like a cross between one of Black Lace or possibly both. Yeah, Black Lace and Tracy Ullman show era Bart Simpson, isn't it? That's who he looks the most like. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he does look a little bit tired. Um, and he's got and he's yeah. he's got those insane veneers. He's got like the John Bon Jovi veneers, like glow in the dark teeth. Yes, which is always always kind of weird. Yes, and yeah, and Mandy, who was like his regular Mandy Newton, this is who was his, um, you know. Yes. Um, which it, you see, that's another thing about fucking Simon Bates, just introducing him as Mandy, like you know my you know my good friend Mandy, and it's like because you know the whole uh, yeah. we were talking about the uh, the pricey um, uh, defined some rap. Um, there's also, I think, the category of some bird, yes. which is a woman who uh, either sings on a record or and or steps in to perform that part on shows. But either way goes sort of either yeah. unnamed or not quite named or not quite properly credited, you know. Um, so that's a mm. bit of a pisser, isn't it? It's like, oh, she's called Mandy. Yes, she, yes, her name is Mandy Newton. She's actually a regular backing singer for him. And it's not like she's in the background. No. In front, with a mic stand or anything. She's interacting with yeah. him. Yeah, so it's a very intimate, slightly awkward, but basically sort of sweet performance um so obviously you know so they knew each other and they do that in the middle um it's something to do during the middle eight i suppose is do the kind of school disco oh that's snuggle dance you know and and sort of whisk and they're whispering things to each other and he does a big laugh and it's like what did she what could she have said or is he just laughing for sheer joy at being with this woman it's weird though because the crowd Uh, love that smooch and looking back from the future mm. we can see right through it and he shouldn't have to do it but that's the way it went, you know. It's like it's this kind of weird demonstration of uh, heterosexuality on top of the pops. It's, yes, it is. Oh, Lamar likes girls, hooray! Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of heterosexuality for me, but half the fun of it is it's not for everyone, you know. It would be a bit of a drag if, if it were. <laughs> the, yeah. the crowd that's it, it's, it's quite a desultory handful of the kids, isn't it? Mm. And most of them are in stripy plastic party bowler hats and there's those crappy little sandcastle flags with the top of the Pops logo and just all the granny clapping straight away. They've not got much to, to work with here anyway. I mean, this whole song, mm. it's just about that key change into the chorus, isn't it? Like the door mm. opening into this stupid fairy tale world. Um, and, you know, as you'd expect, that's handled by Giorgio Moroder with the 
minimum of fuss and to maximum effect. Mm. And it has to be because there's nothing else going on in this song at all. And whatever else you might say for Limal, he's not a singer who can really seize control of a song and elevate it. Uh, And also you can't really respect a song whose hook line and best bit goes never ending story oh 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 oh, oh. oh I mean, don't God, knock yeah. yourself out <laughs> mr lyricist you know keep something back <laughs> for the next smash it and i mean i'm all for yeah. silly noises and grunts but it's hard to get into a song with a chorus like that because it's like being paid with an iou it's not satisfying yeah. and you feel a bit short short change and all the musical Space has been filled, but it's just been filled with sawdust and sandbags like someone couldn't be bothered, you know. And that's the hinge yeah. on which the whole song is swinging. I and mean, the, the uh bit, that used to get right on my tits, mainly because my mate at the time, you know, when you're a teenager, even at the age of 16 or something, you know, teenagers just develop verbal tics and are just quite happy to just sit there and just make noises. Well, one of my mates used to do Godzilla and my other mate, out of nowhere, we'd be, you know, be on the bus or something like that, and he'd suddenly go, <laughs> yeah. So that this is this is bringing back memories of being annoyed on a bus <laughs> when I'm trying to trying to impress girls. <laughs> the obvious compare and contrast is uh, with uh, Together in Electric Dreams, which is at number five this week. Yes, it's down from number four to number five. So we've got another lead singer of the early eighties going up against Giorgio Moroder doing a film song. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't stand up very well to it, does the it? The thing is, though, like, Giorgio Moroder, he is a man who don't give a fuck. I think we can all agree. Like, he would, no. he's kind of gloriously um, indiscriminate in his career. He's like, um, he did a thing uh, earlier this year. He did, like, a sort of, uh, he did he did a show and kind of did, like, a, a chronological kind of walk through his career. And it's completely mad because there's, you know, obviously, I feel love, which is the alpha record of house music and one of the peaks of human endeavor, and then you know, yeah. just just kind of uh, kind of sad bollocks like this. But um, I mean, he's apparently he said that his favorite composition is "Take My Breath Away" by Berlin. Oh, it's just a kind of mad, billowing, moody synth pop storm cloud, which is literally what we're in the middle of a thunderstorm right now, and it sounds. Oh. Sounds just like Take My Breath Away, but better. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Together in Electric Dreams, everyone's pretty much agreed. It's uh, it's a decent song. Yeah, I love it. This is his runty little brother. The thing about this is that um, like it's it's meant to evoke the film that it's from. I mean, it literally is. I mean, Simon Bates yeah. got it wrong by calling it a never-ending song, but it doesn't just fade out. It also fades in. Mm. See? See? Um, but it's meant to, it, it's the thing is that it's a, it's meant to be this sort of soaring fantasy ditty and, you know, it sort of delivers on, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of like, it's not really poignant, but it's supposed to, you know, it's sort of supposed to prod that bit of your brain. Yeah. I don't know if either of you have seen the film, The Never Ending Story. No. It's fucking mental. Mm. It's absolutely yeah, it's mad. Horrible. Yeah, no, it, it, it's horrible. It's um, it's German, actually. It was made by the guy, uh, Wolfgang Peterson, who previously made Das Boot just to give you some idea, but this is Fuck. for kids. And it's about, it's amazing. It's got very heavy themes. It's got, um, so yeah, it was in German. It's the original title is Die Unterliche Geschichte. Nice. And it's, it's brutally dark and upsetting. 
And, you know, this was something I'd, I guess I must have seen it at the cinema because I remember it very, um, very clearly. Yeah. And it's, it's fucking terrifying. It's about grief and the power of imagination and making bullies piss their pants. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, there's a force of it. The, the big bad in it is uh, like the force of evil called the nothing, Ooh. which is like this kind of sentient oblivion that eventually consumes consumes everything it's fucking it's fucking terrifying so you know you wouldn't know it really from from this song no um which wasn't originally it was kind of tacked on to like the american and british release of the film right it's not in the original one so i it's just wrapped up with it's something that that reminds me of that film so actually this song is like has this profound darkness underneath it because i just remember you know there's a there's a bit in the film where um the kind of the really famous bit where there's there's a place called the Swamps of Despair and the hero rides into it with his horse and the horse is is overcome by by existential woe and just stands there and won't move and it drowns. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. There's some interesting dissonance there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I come to this song as cold as I did. When it came out, and to me, it's just cat shit. Yeah. I think the the Vesta advert sitar effect that really gets on my tits. And I, I don't think I knew at the time that it was Giorgio Moroder, but it was like, oh fucking hell, mate. <laughs> I think he would have quite happily done the theme tune to tickle on the tum at the time if there was enough money involved in it. I mean, I respect that though. I I love that he's kind of not a snob about his own stuff. I mean, you know, even though even though he's done yeah. some, some trash. Like um, Dory, um, the writer Dory Linsky described him as um, half craft work, half starship, which is no. which is about perfect, really. I just wish this was the mid eighties film theme by Giorgio Moroder that was being brutalised by those fucking basic bros with their ridiculous beards and <laughs> wooden instruments in that fucking advert because at oh, least God, they wouldn't yes. have ruined it. Because yeah. I mean, this would sound like simpering gloop if Lou Reed did a version of it you know yes. what I mean it's like ugh, very bad for the soul this is you know yeah I, I actually saw Lamal round about this time in uh, in Nottingham city centre um I think he was there I don't think he was doing a gig but he'd done an appearance on on summit for central I don't know fucking emu's pink windmill or bullseye or or something like that and he he appeared in the top window of a building in the market square. And it was heaving with people, obviously, because seeing a celebrity in Nottingham was like seeing a giraffe in Nottingham. It just, it just didn't do it. So I'm I'm just standing in this crowd just out of something to do. I think I've probably bunked off college like everyone else had. And all I can remember is half the crowd were screaming girls going absolutely mental at this gonk waving at them. <laughs> and the other half were um, youths in tracksuits just standing there shouting, Jump, guy! Jump! <laughs> Nice. The following week, the never-ending story leapt five places to number five, eventually reaching number four. However, after taking much of 1985 off, he reunited with Maroda for the LP Colour All My Days, only for it to get zero out of ten in smash hits, and the lead-off single Love In Your Eyes only getting to number eight, his last appearance in the UK charts. He spent the 90s working as a dance music producer, briefly linked up with his old band in 2003 for an episode of VH1's Bands Reunited, toured with them five years later, appeared in I'm a Celebrity earlier this decade, has been on assorted Atri's retro tours as a solo act, 
and the single popped up in the final episode of the latest series of Stranger Things, but I don't know how because I've only seen one episode and I didn't reckon it much. <laughs> I can tell you if you're interested. Sorry. No, no, don't bother. Nah, I just nah. saw this scene where all the kids got taken in their parents' cars to an amusement arcade and dropped off and I just got really angry at that. The luxury that American youths had in the 80s. Yeah, that's probably not for you. No. That's Lamar with Never Ending Story with Matthew from Tottenham. It's a new video out, first time on Top of the Pops, it's by Status Quo, and it's really good fun. I mean, that's all it is. It's The Wanderer. Have a look at it, see what you think. has wasted no time whatsoever in getting stuck into the girls, but oh dear, the floor manager has picked out some wonderfully leery ones. <laughs> the one on the left, in lacy fingerless gloves, a blue top and matching hair, smoulders at the camera like she was on the cover of Rio, while her mate, in a grey dress with old Chinese writing on it and a big mesh insert around the arms and midriff, puts her face right up against Bates's chin and piss-takingly nods at everything he says. That was remarkable, wasn't it? I love them. Mm. They're my favourites. They're like my favourite Top of the Pops audience members ever. Yes. I really hope they were mates. Like, because I want to, I just, I want to write yeah. a sitcom about them, like sharing a flat and going out dancing and winding up twats. You know, <laughs> they're amazing. I'm not so sure. Oh. They don't seem to go together. Oh. What it is, it's the way that that girl with the blue hair is doing that really determined, sultry stare. Mm. It's hard to do that when you've got an English face and a royal blue Cossack hat of your own hair, <laughs> like perched on top of that ruddy moon. It's an unfair setup. It's it's That look that she's cultivating is not suitable for sultry stares. Whereas if you... You know, look like a Spanish glamour model like the other one. Like she out-sultries the other one, even though she's pulling faces like Phil Cool on his first <laughs> pill. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know. They, they seem a, a, a funny match. No, she knows what she's about, the girl in the blue. Like she's, that's a really like powerful smirk. I know she's sort of pouting, but she's smirking. Mm. She's got like a sort of lip curl going on. Like, and she, she, her, she's also sort of taking the piss a bit. I think they've I think they formed a pincer movement, but um, yeah, they they were just my mm. my my favourites ever, and I hope I hope they're happy somewhere because <laughs> they deserve it. We need to reunite them. Yeah, let's do that. Bates, clearly thrown by all this, describes the following act thusly: There's a new video out, the first time on top of the pops. It's by status quo, and it's really good fun. I mean, that's all it is. See what you think. <laughs> He's selling it hard, isn't he? So unbelievably insulting. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. He says, it's really good fun. I mean, that's all it is. As, just in case you thought it was an adaptation of Dante's Purgatorio, <laughs> the original Italian. Yeah, it, it's like Rigsby trying to explain to Miss Jones why he's bought this split crotch play suit off an advert in the News of the World for a birthday. But... It's yeah, it's the fact that he's trying to be positive, but he gets a bit embarrassed in the middle, like a a dad whose enthusiasm is yeah. awkward, you yeah. know, and he suddenly realizes it. Yeah, it's like oh, I've met these girls and they they've been really friendly, and uh, now I've got to talk about status quo. He's trying to style his way out of it, isn't it? But Simon Bates and style are, are two concepts that just do not go together. Like yeah, it's just it's just a bit of fun. Yeah, mate, a lot of terrible deeds have been excused with that expression. I would I would wind that in if I were you. Mm. <laughs> it's like whatever yeah. is coming is just gonna is not gonna be good. You can tell. And <laughs> watching status quo stand on the back of a lorry being driven round London on a miserable day with cutaway shots of old ladies pointing at them and all that stuff is uh, it's a pretty fucked up vision of really good fun. <laughs> the video he's introducing is the Wanderer by Status Quo. Formed in the Sedgehill Comprehensive School in Catford in 1962 by Francis Rossi and Alan Lancaster, the Scorpions began their career gigging around pubs in London before changing their name to the Spectres. In 1965, after playing a sort of butlins, the band got to know Rick Parfit, who was playing in a cabaret band, and a year later they signed to Piccadilly Records and changed their name to Traffic and then changed it again to Traffic Jam because Stevie Wingwood had bags in it first. Their first four singles flopped, but after Parfit finally joined the band, the fifth single, Pictures of Matchstick Men, put them over the top, getting them to number seven for three weeks in February of 1968. Although the follow-up, Black Veils of Melancholy, failed to chart, they'd have four more chart hits up to 1970 before diminishing returns set in and their next two LPs flopped. In 1970, they dropped their vaguely psychedelic sound and picked up on the boogie sounds that were emanating from the US. And after they signed to Vertigo Records in 1972, they came back with a vengeance, with a single paper plane getting to number eight and the LP Pile Driver getting to number five in February of 1973. This kicked off a run of 13 chart hits across the 70s, which peaked in January of 1975, went down, down, usurped Lonely This Christmas from the number one spot and stayed there for a week before being toppled by Miss Grace by the Times. They got off to an absolute flyer in the 80s when What You're Proposing got to number two in November of 1980, held off the top spot by Woman in Love by Barbara Streisand, and this, their 11th chart hit this decade so far, is the follow-up to Going Downtown Tonight, which got to number 20 in June of this year. It's a cover of the Dion single, which got to number 10 in March of 1962 and number 16 in June of 1976, and it's spending its second week at number 7. And here's the video, with the band playing on the back of a flatbed truck, which is going through London. Oh, status quo, taking their brand of rock and roll chaos to the streets. (laughs) Oh, well, it's shot in, in the documentary style, which is to say that it looks absolutely terrible. Yes. And, you know, it is, yeah, it's a miserable yeah. sort of nothing day in London. And none of the, you know, no no kind of distinctive bits of London. And, yeah, just people going past looking either, you know, 
quite quite happy because like oh this is the highlight of my day just seeing some pranax on the back of a truck or or just fully nonplussed and mm. fully kind of unimpressed like the first cutaways to a bloke who's just like huh yes i don't know what they thought they were doing but what did they ever think they were doing really they they're not uh mm. you know I, I think mark radcliffe described status quo as the most aptly named band ever and <laughs> they are the sound of sameness echoing in mm. a void yeah i'm not a status quo hater because who could be right no. how would you how would you summon the heart to object to these unobtrusive old twats but <laughs> besides they did do some quite good records yes. in that very particular style in as much as if you want to listen to a record like that these are very much your men or were in a mm. younger day because mm. by this point I mean, Francis Rossi is only about 35 here. But I know. By the old rules, you know, and his soul is ancient stone. And it, <laughs> oh, yeah. Was it not the Stones who were the first to do this back-of-a-truck stunt in the modern era? I mean, like everything else the Stones ever did, I think it was stolen from old black American musicians who used to perform on trucks. But they did it... To promote their 1975 American tour, they went down like Fifth Avenue playing brown sugar on the back of a truck. But the thing right. is, to see the Rolling Stones on the back of a truck, even in New York, seems yeah. like an unusual and remarkable thing. Yeah. Whereas to, st- to see status quo on the back of a truck, like recycling, yes. um, <laughs> just seems perfectly natural, like it's the obvious place for them to be. And... Mm. Um, the whole video is shot in that certain way, yeah, on a certain kind of film stock, in a certain kind of London light, that it looks like an episode of Minder. Um, <laughs> and Rick Parfit looks about as healthy as the guest stars in Minder as well, with his yeah. with his dark puffy jowls. He's, well, his, he's, uh, the, he's the dead spit of Rick Spangle there, the millionaire pop star owner of Fulchester United. Yes, Second yes. reference to Billy the Fish. The worst thing about this video, you can't help thinking... This video obviously took all day and part of the evening to shoot because mm. it starts in the daylight and ends in darkness. Yeah. And it's all lip-synced. Uh, every shot is them lip-syncing. So yeah. how many times do you think they had to play The Wanderer through speakers oh, gosh, yeah. on the lorry <laughs> in the course of making this? How profoundly sick do you think everyone got? <laughs> I was sick of this song by the second verse. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was that, it's got that horrible vacuum pack production which makes it all sound sort of distantly loud mm. and completely uneventful so i don't think it's a record that would stand up too well to endless repetition so the idea of it being inescapable all day and with the droning of the engine yeah. and the the smell of fully lead and exhaust fumes yeah. uh, the damp buildings just scrolling by all looking the same i i fancy that they would have come close to turning to drink as the afternoon wore on <laughs> yes. or wore off just to get through this. It's going around, 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 again, around, again, again, around, around, around. Because if you know, if someone came up to you in 1984 and say, "Oh, you know, Status Quo got a new single out. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the cover of The Wanderer." You go, "Oh yeah, I know exactly what that sounds like." Yeah, I don't need to hear it. it's funny because this is obviously quite a you know it's quite a a jolly rendition of it and and you know Mm. francis rossi's kind of having a little smirk to himself about all these women yeah um but it's like it's actually really fucking bleak 
It's like when, once you get to the middle eight, it's you know because he's he, this is a, a you know an old Rue who is uh, mm-hmm. putting it about the place. But it's actually you know he's obviously been he's had his heart broken by Rosie, who's uh, whose name he has tattooed on his chest. Uh, that, yeah, that could be a reference to his favourite police based sitcom though. <laughs> yeah, but that's who that's who killed his heart dead. So now every time he starts to feel feelings for a woman, he gets in his car and drives off. Mm. And and so now he's just he's just going around and around and around, giving everyone chlamydia and waiting for death. It's quite it's quite grim yeah. actually. <laughs> it's a load of bollocks when you apply it to status quo because they were the most groupy adverse bands of their era. Um, you know, out of the own mouth of Francis Rossi in an interview with John Harris and Q in two thousand and one, he said, "This is talking about the the whether going out on tour in the seventies. One of the guys we knew had a Cine Eight projector with." These films. Everybody would check into the hotel, grab a towel and come back to one of the rooms. The projector was pointed at the neck curtains, but it would also project across the street. People would walk along the street, seeing huge tits and knobs on the wall. Everybody would be on a bed having a polish. You did everything in everyone's company. Having a polish was nothing to worry about. I remember a German girl in amongst all this... All these blokes who were clearly aroused, saying, Englishman? Shag? It was like, no, fuck off. I'm trying to have a polish. <sighs> so there you go. There's a nice little mental image for people who listen to podcasts in bed at night. Uh, Thank, thanks, Al. Probably all rocking back and forth in unison. <laughs> yeah, now every time I, I hear that, I just I, the pictures to go with it are there. Mm. That's that's what they're for. That's you know, it's yeah. for, for men to have a polish for fuck's sake. But they are they're such a pub band. I mean, it is like you just you, they've they've taken a, a truck that was previously heavily laden with kind of kegs or casks of real ale, and they've just yes. rip, swapped them all out with with status quo. I mean, they are basically the sonic equivalent of an overflowing drip tray to me. Mm. Like you said, I mean, you can't you can't really hate them, but um, no. But I try. Um, you realise they've got a they've got a new album out, or they uh, it's Francis Rossi and and someone else. Yeah. Because um, I I know I knew that I'd seen and kind of marvelled at the uh, the posters on the tube, and it looks like they've done the posters themselves. They're like it's it's such a a miracle <laughs> of bad graphic design. It's all red and black and looks really sort of fashy. Oh, done in Quark Express. <laughs> yeah. Get me a get me a gif of a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a I was like they've put a tagline on it and I cannot remember what it is mm. so I had to ask um I had to ask Facebook and all I could think of was get some quo up here <laughs> which is and it's not that but that's what my that's all my memory could offer it's like how about this like oh god no but it's something like that and what it is is actually keep quoing and put some backbone on right I mean okay. okay so I mean I've done copywriting there's a lot to unpack yeah. here like, okay, so obviously that means the album. You know, the album is called Backbone. But it doesn't work because idiomatically you can't put Backbone on, no. can you? Yeah, I was just thinking Like, that. you can show a little Backbone or you can, like, grow a Backbone or whatever, but you can't You can't put someone... But, like, keep... That they've kind of... I'm I'm just fascinated by this. Like, who, who did this? I don't think it was someone who actually works in marketing. I think it was one of status quo. Yeah. Quo is, for some reason, a really hilarious phoneme or syllable um or both uh, but like you know yo bum rush the quo nice 
Hell quo, hell quo, it's quid to be backbone. <laughs> I was trying to come up with something worse, and it's like, I'm not sure. Base, how quo could you go? <laughs> quo, quo, quo your boat gently down the stream. Nice. They're just like the end of, of creativity for me now. It's like I've hit a wall, you know, it's it's there's just a brick wall of, of kind of unimaginative sludge. <laughs> this is around the time that, that all the metalers at my school were in a quo. Um, I suppose because they're, They'd now position themselves there quite smartly, I suppose, playing Donington mm. and all that sort of stuff. But the singles they were putting out uh, in the early 80s were all this kind of rocking yeah. chair boogie. You know, yeah. they did Margarita Time, uh, a mess of blues. Yeah, all these cover versions, Quo Waddy Wadda. Yeah, it, it was Denim Doonicus. <laughs> yes. And I didn't really see the link to Iron Maiden no. or Motorhead, you know. But it was all subcultural, wasn't it? It was The link wasn't so much musical. It was between people who were happy to wear the same jeans for nine weeks mm. and live on cider and barbiturates. It was weird, that metal scene of the early 80s, before metal split and became, on the one hand, a fairly respected and challenging genre, and on the other, that sort of L.A., uh, Ponce rock, you know. Yeah. In those days, there was still a a straight line from bikers and hell's angels to heavy metal, and the whole idea of being serious or credible or moving with the times. It was those was alien concerns mm. because at root, metal is all about a single moment. It's about prolonging the moment, and the aim of metal is a kind of singularity with nothing coming in or going out and I sort of like that but not to the point where I'd tolerate listening to status quo from half a mile yeah. away in a sleeping bag full of piss <laughs> surrounded by yo-yos <laughs> but I mean but I would take this quo over the next quo which was in the army yes. now and you know that baby Keith Harris drummer that they mm. got like the little he looked like the little bloke from the Baron Knights yes. but in satin running shorts and a Terry toweling headband like he was dressed like Ginger Lynn but with the face of a of a prematurely born lamb you know what I mean <laughs> I mean this is at least this is a status quo record for better or for worse it's sort of yeoman like and it's like a massive Quoman. slab of cheap pork <laughs> quoman like if you will yes yeah Cooked with no seasoning. It's that, yes. but that late eighties quote has got the stink of the of the real scorpions about it. Mm. You know that sort of horrible Central European trash sincerity. Yeah, you know when they're they're actually singing about stuff, and you're not just asked to swallow this humorless stupidity. You're asked to swallow humorless stupidity from men of forty in bomber jackets and tight jeans and white plimsolls like they somehow know better than you mm. you know i say shut up and bang your head <laughs> i mean the thing that really threw me about this video then and now was that uh, ross's in what's known as an ma1 flight jacket mm. which was known round my way as a green jacket which was something i actually owned at the time uh -oh. and you know it had been the style for a couple of years uh, mainly for skinheads or yuzu like ub40 um, uh, and he tries to moderate it by having not one, but two cut-out metal guitar badges. But then he, he, he fucks it up again by having a tie underneath it. It's like, what, the, what kind of look are you going for there? <laughs> Is this trying to reach back yeah. to his mod roots, I wonder? I would say kind of Brighouse nightclub bouncer. Ugh. Yeah. 
But I mean, like the best videos of the early 80s, it's got loads of shots of proper London. Yeah. But it's also got loads of shots of people who are really unimpressed by seeing status quo on the back of a van. I mean, that that lad in the Iron Maiden t-shirt, he's not that arsed, is he? No. No. He's not as impressed as the uh, woman in that really horrible lady die dress with a big stupid bow or or the haggard milkman with a with a fag in his mouth who gives him the thumbs up at the beginning. Yeah, of course he would. There's some really rubbish punks. <laughs> and they're even trying to get a bit of fucking break dancing in as well. Yeah. There's that one lad who does a, a bit of a spin round. And I always wonder how much shit did he get at school for breaking in a quo video. <laughs> and of course, Parfait tries to... Um, one-up him and show him he's still down with the kids by walking on his hands. Yeah. Uh, but one of the youths tries to kick him up the arse and the other one thinks very seriously about legging him up. So, yeah, the, the kids are not paying respect to the quo in this video at all, are they? I mean, what what was the concept yeah. behind this video? Was it like, oh, we're going to, you know, we'll just show, it's it's London, you know, and they'll be, they'll be so happy to see us and it'll bring a little excitement into their yeah. grey little London lives and, you know, we'll, they'll be so delighted to see us. And, you know, if those were the best they got, I want to see the outtakes from this. Yeah, you can imagine, can't you? Like people just swearing at them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how many flick Vs they got. <laughs> just a cavalcade of Vs. But bad as it would get after this for status quo, it did get better again in that they did make Bula Quo, the monkeys-like musical adventure comedy film what? from 2013. Have you not no. heard of this? What? Right. When... Rossi was 64 and Parfit was 63. Um, they made, yeah, Bula Quo. It's uh, set in Fiji um, and they're on the run from gangsters. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a romp. It's like a 60s-style uh, rock band uh, romp film. And it's absolutely the greatest and most wonderful thing they could possibly have done at that point in their career because it's... It's completely unexpected in every way, um, right down to the fact that it's not even shit in the way you'd expect. Wow. Right? Because I watched it, I thought this is going to be jaw-dropping and disturbing and uproarious, but it's not. You watch it and it's just another incredibly dull 21st century British film, uh. right? which m- manages to make status quo playing down-down on ukuleles. Uh, while on the run from gangsters in the South Pacific, seem like the most predictable thing in the world. It's a, it's a classic to put aside St Trinian's Two, oh. the Legend of Fritton's Gold, oh, you know, or, or uh, Run for Your Wife with Danny Dyer and <laughs> Denise Van Outen. Jesus. But just the fact that they did it. That'll have got Parfit into heaven, I reckon. Amazing. Anything else to say? Uh, only one thing. I want to leave you with this uh, this mental image. Uh, it turns out they did uh, an acoustic album. Uh, do you want to take a guess at what it was called? Oh, uh, not a quo stick. Yep. Yes! A quo stick strip, <laughs> stripped bare. And uh, guess what they are doing on the cover? wanking in unison I've been a pot no they are not having a polish but they are nude with only guitars to cover their embarrassment Jesus for fuck's sake ripping off the metal donut band yeah Yeah. when are they going to get their fucking dues I was going through the 1985 smash it's year oh yes the other day published late 1984 of Mm. course which uh, I thought some people off this episode would be in it but the only one 
who is, is Rick Parfit, who um, appears with his then-girlfriend, Debbie Ash, out of Hot Gossip. Right. Uh, Leslie Ash's sister also played the title role in Rosie Dixon Night Nurse, the uh, perfect archetype and apotheosis of the horrible British sex comedy, Ooh. where she appears alongside Beryl Reed, John Le Mesurier, Liz Fraser, John Junkin, Bob Todd, uh, Harry Taub, oh, and, and big-hearted Arthur Askey, oh. who gets to grope her for our titillation. Um, Jesus. So they do a feature about pop stars and their other halves, um, and they interview her, and she paints a lovely picture of their domestic bliss. She says, uh, Rick thinks I'm a great cook, he loves my Heinz spaghetti on toast. <laughs> I suppose Rick's quite romantic. He sometimes buys me flowers, but only every now and then. That's what makes it so nice. If he did it all the time, it would be awful. Man, that's bleak. <laughs> but I, she was she was married to Eddie Kidd before she met Rick. So Good Lord. She obviously had a thing for unhealthy Jack the Lad. But <laughs> um, she does also say that Despite the rock and roll lifestyle, she and Rick trust each other, absolutely, yeah. which is very uh, sweet. Yeah, well, he's not going to have a wank with his mates. She knows he's, uh, he'd rather have a polish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she's got nothing to worry about. So the following week, the Wanderer stayed at number seven for its third week before slipping down the charts. However, unbeknown to the heads down, no-nonsense boogie-crazed youngsters, quo, were infighting like bastards. Still burned out from their last tour, bassist Alan Lancaster had relocated to Australia and in 1985, Francis Rossi made moves to kickstart a solo career, a quolo career, if you will, (laughs) as Lancaster had taken out a legal injunction to prevent them performing as status quo without his involvement. After an out-of-court settlement, their follow-up, Rolling Home, got to number nine in May of 1986, and they'd have 20 more top 40 hits. They've just released their 33rd studio LP, and they stand alone as the band who made the most appearances on Top of the Pops, with 87 performances and 106 appearances on the show. Oh, just one more thing. From this article with uh, John Harris and Q, a a tale at the end from from Mr. Rosser. He says... I arrived at the airport back from Amsterdam. The guy said, where have you been? I said, don't take the piss, you know where I've been. Where have you been? I said, you know where I've been. It's on the luggage label, that's why you pulled me in. It carried on until I said, Amsterdam. What did you go there for, he said. I said, not that it's your business, but to shag the wife, get away from the children, eat some fantastic food and smoke some dope. He said... You admit it then. He's looking through my gear, my jacket. We're convinced you're smuggling. He looked at my arse, everything. Can you lift your testicles up? I was there for three hours. At the end, he said, I'm a great fan of yours. I'm coming to see you in Brighton with the girls from Debenhams.
status quo for the Wanderer this week. They are number seven in the charts. To the highest new entry now is Depeche Mode. You may have seen them live on the whistle test doing somebody. Tonight live on Top of the Pops, Blasphemous Rumours. <laughs> wisely separated from the Leary kids, bangs on about Top of the Pops being live again and asks us if we saw the last act on Whistle Test doing somebody for nor for nor. It's Blasphemous Rumours by Depeche Mode. We've discussed Depeche Mode fucking loads <laughs> and this, their 12th single release, is part of a double A side with somebody. It's the follow-up to Master and Servant, which got to number nine in September of this year, and is the third and fourth cut from the LP Some Great Reward, which came out in late September. And it's the highest and one of only two new entries this week in at number 29. Uh, Before we go any further, did you notice the metal badge that Skinner's wearing? It's the tube. Yes, it's the the tube logo. The tube. The program, the tube, yeah. Huh. It's okay. He's having a having a little chuckle there to himself, I think. So right at the beginning of this, the flags go up and they're immediately put down by most of the kids. Ball one, well, there's one lad still waving his flag. Do you think there that the floor manager was going for fuck's sake, put that down? This is a song about teenage suicide. <laughs> It's like it's not appropriate. So once again, Depeche Mode, Darken Our Doors. And uh, Sarah, I believe this is your first time with them. So go, I you, believe you, it is. you have it. Well, if you'll indulge me, I'd just like to spaff on a sec about how much I love Depeche Mode. Al, ask me how much I love Depeche Mode. Sarah, how I much? bloody love them. I, they're just a colossally great synth pop band, aren't they? I mean, mm. you know, I, I almost forgot about them. And it's like, oh yeah, fucking Depeche Mode. And they're like a sort of plushy amalgam of... Soft Cell and Nine Inch Nails, aren't they? Because this single is basically them turning on a sixpence and uh, moving away from what they were and becoming the band that most people know them by today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it probably is around this time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of, I, I kind of love every era, really. I mean, they've just got mm. such a great sound and the singles are so great. They look great, the songs are wicked. They do, you know, moody stuff and sexy stuff and sincerely sweet stuff and stuff you can mm. swing your arms around to. And it's got to be said, Dave Garner's a really, I think he's a really brilliant pop star. He mm. somehow manages to be like at once deadpan and just really dirty. Mm. And, you know, it's, he can sing about, there's not many people who can sing about the beauty of innocence one minute and the brutality of BDSM the next, are there? No. He's got this really pleasing, resonant, deep voice, which is... It's very plain, but it's it's really satisfying as well. It's kind of languid and urgent at the same time. And mm. this is where he's kind of it's growing. Bourneville, is what you're saying. We can do better than Bourneville. I think it's more one of the sort of... Um... Green and blacks. <laughs> I, I, would go, I would go lint, lint with a touch of salt. Yeah, oh. That's the good stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> around this time he's kind of growing... He's growing into his voice, like a sort of... You know the way that like German Shepherd puppies grow into their ears? Mm. He's kind of doing that. And occasionally he sort of guns it into a bit of vibrato, like a classic racing car. It's just one of the most yeah. thrilling sounds in pop for me. <laughs> um, and the other thing is, of course, that they've got this great dynamic, which is, um, you know, Martin Gore's second vocals. So it's not even really backing that they're second, and a lot of the time he does the chorus and stuff. And yeah. it's just such a... That offsets it so perfectly. Actually, I just realised uh, with him and uh, with Dave Garn sort of 
um, uh, chocolatey thing and, and Martin Gore doing the kind of yearning, plangent falsetto highlights. You could call it the level 42 dynamic, couldn't you? But Ooh. But I ain't gonna. <laughs> I don't think it's appropriate. Just forget I said it. Um, I mean, yeah. So Martin Gore. I mean, as as demonstrated here, in fact, not going to win the Nobel Prize for his lyrics anytime soon. No, I, I don't know if he's a sort of naive or, or just just naff. Yeah, but I mean, he's had some moments of, of sort of simple poetry, none of which appear in in this song. But um, <laughs> the thing is that Dave always sells it, and it always works because there's just the right amount of seriousness in the delivery somehow so that the songs don't collapse under their own duffness, which really, I don't know how they've pulled that off, but but they really do. You could uncharitably describe this performance as shaking Neubauten, but (laughs) you know, you, you can't, you can't expect the pop crazed youngsters to immediately pitch into that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a a long tradition of taking the avant-garde and popping it up, isn't it? It's a perfectly respectable thing to do. This is a nice easing in, isn't it? This is this is Depeche Mode putting the tip of the hammer in. <laughs> I wondered what you yeah, were going to say yeah, that then. Didn't sound very right at all, Fucking did it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though. I, I know. No, I, I do. I do know what you're saying. I, it, this is a really good performance. I think it's it's one of two mm. like proper performances this episode. I would say. Um, yeah. I mean, this is my for a start. It's like this is my favourite era, as I've probably said before, for for top of the pop sets. So there's the lovely mm. angular knee on behind them, which suits them just right. And, yeah. you know, it's a really dramatic performance of a dramatic song. There's yeah. like, um, there's a couple of little industrial touches as your man there hammering a stack of breeze blocks, which yeah. I don't think I've seen before or since. And, I know, uh, man. You wouldn't want to be Depeche Mode's roadies at this time, would you? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Fuck you, that's, yeah. that's, that's taking the piss, isn't it, really? Yeah, because, you, know, you know, back in the day, it was just a, like a holdall full of those little Casio keyboards and some plastic trumpets and now it's it's fucking huge blocks of concrete yeah now they're like no we have a vision you know Mm. and and somebody's bike there's a bit of martin gore's doing a bit of uh um you know multitasking is doing a bit of impromptu bike repair but that's which i should say is actually he's just running a drumstick over the spinning spokes which both looks and sounds good Mm. um dave is how old is he here he's like He's like 22, but obviously yeah, still he, looks... Well, he, he looks 15 now. He looks 15. He, he looks 15. He's going to start shaving at any moment. <laughs> but he's totally self-assured. He's got terrific stage presence, just looks really relaxed. And, mm. and it has to be said, just so pretty. Well, no wonder, because this must have been about the 34th performance they've done on Top of the Pop so far. Yeah, it is. They they are kind of quite at home on this stage by now, aren't they? Mm. But I mean, yeah, I mean, he grew into his looks as well. Like he sort of after a while after this, he um, he still got the sort of blonde blonde quiff at this point. Yeah. And then he kind of grew it, grew grew that out and discovered eyeliner, which which really helped. And also discovered heroin, which I yeah. guess helped helped for a time and then stopped helping. Yes. And <laughs> and then didn't die, which I'm. Really pleased about. I'm glad to still share a planet with Dave Garn, who now looks like a sort of cross between Jeff Goldblum and Michael Hutchins. Right. Which is, he's pulled it off. You know, that's that's pretty lucky. He he should look like the 100-year-old man at this point, but, you know. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, the song, um, <laughs> lyrics aside, just for the time being, um, it's a good catchy tune and it's got a good chorus and it's got... A potentious, it's got this potentious introduction. It's like, here comes the song. It's a serious song. And yeah. there's loads of like sonically interesting stuff going on. There's loads of 
twinkling and gurgling and rattling and chiming, but loads of space around all of that for everything to breathe. So, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed this very much. If only Top of the Pops had chosen to give out uh, sledgehammers and lumps of concrete to the pop crazy youngsters instead of flags and balloons for this particular <laughs> yeah, performance. Yeah, then you would have seen some interesting shit, wouldn't you? I mean, mm. I, I'm, I'm just really glad that they didn't hand out, like, inflatable hammers or... Oh, yeah. Or, or given the theme... I mean, Christ, they could have run with it, you know, given the theme of the song, like, giant comedy cardboard razor blades or something. Yes. Uh, that I, I wouldn't have put it... But I bet somebody thought of that and they went, <laughs> nah, nah, I don't think we can, sorry. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not... I mean, it's not as good as Shake the Disease, but I mean, what is, frankly? Mm. Um, so that concludes Sarah's gushing about Depeche Mode. Um, is Taylor going to ruin it for me or not? If there's one thing chart music has done for me, it's to educate me in the early singles of Depeche Mode, which do turn up with astonishing yes. regularity. But this one I knew really well already, partly because it's from this period of my hyper-attention to contemporary pop, and partly because it's an unforgettably hilarious record, you know. It's, I mean, I've talked about Martin Gore's appalling lyrics on here before, but when things are as funny as this, and you can't quite tell how funny they're, they're meant to be, or even if they're meant to be funny at mm. all, but uh, I can take it, you know. And I'm also mm. something of a connoisseur of pop lyrics which would be circled in red pen by an English teacher, <laughs> but which made it onto the record yes. because nobody was prepared to step in and have a word. Like, I love all the crazy malapropisms on jam records and stuff. And and I like yeah. the awkward wrongness of the chorus lyrics here because aside from anything oh. else, there's no such thing as a blasphemous rumour. But it's the easy word, rumour that's being misused here. It's not the difficult yeah. word blasphemous, right? So, like, if somebody out of Depeche Mode thinks God's got a sick sense of humour, that could be described as a blasphemous opinion or a blasphemous statement. Yes. But it's not a rumour, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Um, you, I can't think of anything that could be described as a blasphemous rumour. If you, if you put it around that God was a nonce, but uh, I don't yeah. know. But there's generally a very <laughs> poor fit between metaphysics and the concept of gossip, you know. It is, and I think it's one mm. which which Martin fails to overcome in the text of this particular song, written with a crayon clutched in his fist, <laughs> tongue poking out the side <laughs> of his mouth, big bag of ice on the top of his head. But it's a really enjoyable record, um, even though like Never Ending Story, and like a lot of Depeche Mode singles, actually, it's all based around the one trick, which is the transition from that sort of amorphous gloom of the verse into the the forward-moving chorus, which suddenly sounds like the sun mm. coming out. And that's what makes this a single, because, yeah, the rest of it's an excuse to, to hit things with hammers, isn't it, and play those sort yeah. of honking, discordant synthesizer sounds and to explore the sartorial possibilities of mixing dog tooth sports jackets with black leather trousers which yeah. is a a bold look mm. if nothing else but it's the mid 1980s and yeah. i mean the colors don't clash which seems to have been the only consideration in those days when picking out an outfit you know what i mean yes. if you look at the great messes of 1984 one thing you can say for them is that they People have learnt how to colour coordinate. They, you don't see the lilac yes. pullovers and brown tweed jackets of the seventies anymore, right? They're like your no. your frog green tartan trousers, at least go with your <laughs> purple 
diagonally buttoned blouse with epaulettes, you know, in terms of chromatics, if nothing else. This brings to mind the concept of banter God, doesn't it? <laughs> so, like, when we, when we all die, we're going to be confronted by a giant yellow sphere with tears coming out of its eyes, <laughs> but never falling. <laughs> what if God was one of us? <laughs> and he was a cunt. Yeah. It's basically what this song is saying. Yeah. Yeah. But the, there are two really positive things you can take from this, which is, first of all, even in the deep winter of the 1980s and the, the, the rollback of all the a lot of the progress that had been made since the Second World War, Britain was a sufficiently civilised country that people could sing this song on early evening BBC One yeah. on what was effectively a kid's show yeah. uh, without the broadcaster having to issue an apology or all the band being hacked to pieces in the street with machetes, right? Yeah. And I think we should value that a little bit more than we do. And secondly, pop music is so robust and durable an art form that a bunch of basled and bozos can stand there and sing hit by a car ended up on a life support machine and it's fine because and nobody cares because it that the depth of this sort of semi-literate juvenile rubbish doesn't determine whether or not it's a good record mm. and and it is you know because other things about it are appealing including the fact that they sing something as preposterous as that on it and there's no paradox there because in this wonderful low art form which we're so lucky to have those rules don't <laughs> apply and sensationalism and silliness and sometimes just utter stupidity can be qualities rather yeah. than flaws, depending on the feeling behind them. And the only fault lies with kids who thought they were taking on a, a bit of fearless, dark poetry here, mm. you know, rather than what it really is, which is sort of participating in a kind of absurd mental conga line through <laughs> through the darkness, you know. I thought it was dead good when they smashed through the block halfway through. I wonder if they're meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I bet the floor managers are well fucked off with them. Yeah, it's, it's a health and safety nightmare, isn't it, really? You imagine just bits you know what I mean? flying all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be bits of concrete and dust all over the place for the next act, or the act after next. <sighs> Got to, you Bloody know, get up, get up there and sweep like the wind. <laughs> you are very right about this, Taylor. I mean, it's it's like people kind of get it into their heads that like every element of of a song uh, needs to be just so in order for it to be to qualify as good as if it were like every ingredient in food in a in a meal needs to be you know fresh it's like it doesn't this is the beauty of it it's like mm. there are some brilliant you know eternal songs that have horrible vocal performances on them or they have you know or the the production is for shit or you know the drummer doesn't know what he's fucking doing and it doesn't matter. And that's the thing. That is that is the beauty of it. Mm. Like, you don't need, yeah. you know, it doesn't actually. And like I said, I think there's a kind of self-seriousness about them, uh, about Depeche Mode, that just sweeps all before it. But not. it's not a kind of, because they're not, there's not a pretentiousness about it. They're not like, yeah, see, see, make you think, doesn't it? Because it mm. is secondary to everything else that's going on. Yeah. And also, I'm I'm a bit fascinated by songs like this, which uh, instead of dealing in puppy love, uh, deal in puppy philosophy or, you know, puppy wisdom, which is 
you know, the appeal <laughs> is similarly geared to 14-year-olds, but, you know, aiming at the head rather than the heart. And they're laughable. They're always laughable, but they sort of work, you know. And I've heard people mm. say, yeah, but it's if you get into this sort of thing as a kid, that will set you up for a later progression into real challenging dark art and poetry but first of all i don't see any real evidence for that because you can still find 55 year old depeche mode fans who still think these lyrics are deep um but also i I don't like the idea of (laughs) pop music as training wheels for grown-up art you know i think that's really distasteful so i leave that to tanita tickerum you know what i mean it's like this rubbish is a thing (laughs) of its own and just the sheer hilarity of that line, I think that God's got a sick sense of humour and when I die, I expect yeah. to find him laughing. Just delivered stone-faced in kinky leathers is all this record needs to justify its existence. But for a lot of people watching this at the time and, and even now, this will be the highlight of the episode. Yeah. Mm. Kind of helps that it's come on the back of Quo in a van and <laughs> Lamol pre- pretending to be interested in girls. Yeah. Well, that's partly why I chose it, to be honest, is like the, the whiplash from, from one mm. track to another happens like at least twice in mm. this episode, which is such a quintessential top of the pops thing for me. Yes. Like that's, the, you know, it's not it's not really top of the pops unless you're kind of going, what? You know, how how can how can this format contain such disparate bollocks and and pearls you know so the following week blasphemous rumors slash somebody soared 13 places to number 16 its highest position the follow-up shake the disease got to number 18 in june of 1985 and they'd have nine more top 40 hits in the latter half of the 80s i don't want to start any blasphemous rumors Also, Top of the Pops has been snooping. We've discovered that Martin, when he sang Somebody, which is the B-side of that, sang it in the nude to get in the mood. Here's Alison Moyer. Continuing to cram women against him, cheerfully tells us that Depeche Mode have spent the past week vomiting and pissing rusty water out of their arses, <laughs> and informs us that Martin Gore sang the other side of their new single with no clothes on and his cock swinging freely in the studio. Yeah, a fact, a fact which which appeared in every bit of coverage of that single that I read at the time. So really, press office fucking working overtime on that. Yeah. But he's got. No discrimination has he, Simon Bates, between like, you know, he's trying to do like the gossipy nuggets. Yes. So, okay, I I can understand why that would be a sort of cheeky, amusing thing to put in. Like, oh, he sang it in the the nude Mm. to get in the mood. 
And it's like, okay, well, you don't have to say it like that, but okay, fine. But yeah, that's, that was Depeche Mode and they've been suffering from food poisoning for about the last week. Why? Nobody needs to know this. What's the matter with you? Yeah. It's like when people just awkwardly blurt out whatever's on their mind in that kind of cringe sitcom way, mm. where basically all sitcoms were that about 10 years ago. Yeah. But like, you're, he's totally, he's, he seems kind of in control of his shit. Like, he means to. <laughs> Unlike Depeche Mode. Unlike Depeche Mode. Um, but like, why? Why have you done this? And I realise something. I think, you know, you know what I was saying about negging before? Mm. He's not, is he? He's just being a penis about everyone. Yeah. In a way that makes him sound incredibly bitter that he's the poor man's Mike Reed and not a live young pop star. Yes. Yeah. That's what it is, isn't it? The only reason you would mention that a group of people who've just performed on top of the pop have had food poisoning a week is if you were trying to cock block. There's no other explanation for it. Um, and he does seem the type. Mm. Maybe he's worried they'll get in on Mandy before he's finished presenting. (laughs) The two girls at the front wearing tinselly lays go woo at this news. He then (laughs) introduces All Cried Out by Alison Moyer. And yeah, I'm just going to pat myself on the back for not saying All Quoed Out. (laughs) Everything is quo. It's like a virus. We've already covered Alison Moyer in Chart Music 12, and this single, her second solo release since Yazoo split up in the autumn of 1983, is the follow-up to Love Resurrection, which got to number 10 in July of this year, and it's the second cut from the LP Alf, which hits the shops tomorrow. Like the debut single, it was written by Moyer and produced by Stephen Jolly and Tony Swain, who got to know each other when they were working on the set of The Muppet Show as a boom operator and cameraman, respectively. And they'd already worked with Imagination, Bananarama and Spandau Ballet. This single has been stuck fast at number eight for three weeks, but here's a good look at our Alison stalking around a park and mooching around a gasworks in a big scarf. Number eight for three weeks, that's ridiculous. Not even Christmas yet. Yeah, I, I, I really loved this at the time and, you know, mm. I think it I think it stands up now. Um, it was kind of one of those tracks that, you know, the, the, the ones that give you some sort of inkling of adult feeling when you're a kid. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what pop music does for you, isn't it? It's like you don't fully comprehend it, but it's like a shadow passing over your young brain Mm. and kind of giving you this this whiff of like adult unhappiness. Yeah. And and what you've got to look forward to in your life, if you're lucky. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, she's got this incredible voice. It's like this really sort of smoky, rich voice. Mm. And and she really like gives it some welly in the chorus here. This is real kind of... Angry, anguished, sort of, you know, sort of ragging, raggy edges, mm. you know, sort of crests and breaks in the middle eight. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's, I love it when somebody with a really distinctive voice like this um, turns to synth pop. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's such a, such a wonderfully broad church, you know, and it's like, yeah, it deserves it, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, so she's, they're like proper, like classic jazz blues pipes. That mm. she has, and I mean, she dabbled in that a bit. Like, well, um, like a couple of years after this, yeah, she was doing uh, like that old devil called love and love letters straight from your heart, which is sort of forties mm. kind of standards, you know, like sung by Billie Holiday and stuff. Yeah. But um, so I mean, she could have, you can imagine her going the sort of uh, winehousey sort of route, but apparently she just didn't fancy it, which is weird because it's like that—that that is 
that is what you'd expect somebody like that to do. But she does. She's just done all kinds of other stuff instead. It's not a brilliant video, is it? When she's sort of on no. Primrose Hill, sort of moodying around in a headscarf. Oh, is it Primrose Hill? Because um, I was trying to work out where that's it was. Primrose Hill. Well, wow. Well, no, yeah, I, yeah, defer, yeah, yeah. I defer to your superior street knowledge. Because <laughs> I thought it was Regent's Park. I looked on the map because I could see what was known as the post office tower at the time in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. then, you know, there's loads of parks around there. So I, I, I got a bit lost. So thank you, Sarah. That's quite all right. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a hodgepodge, really, because it's like, oh, now she's remembering happier times when she's chatting to someone with some hair on a bench mm. and then subsequently throwing some lilies on a table. See, she's not pissed off enough to actually smash the vase. no. As you know, yeah. or, or put the lilies in the bin. Yeah, she's like, oh, I'm a bit miffed about this breakup. I'm just gonna yeah throw the flowers instead of you know. That's a shame because maybe they didn't have the budget for it, you know. But it's like yeah. um, that's such an excellent '80s video bullshit thing. Yes. Is like slow motion vases smashing against walls, representing you know the the angst. '80s video alert number one. Yes. Of this episode, yeah, singer involved in business with dead flowers and dismissive gesture, and yeah, as you say, feistier ladies, uh, i.e., models acting in a video for a song by blokes would hurl that vase at the yeah. wall like they were mentally unstable, you know. But Alison is a bit more British and self-possessed, so she just gets them out and just sort of goes <clears throat> throws them on the table. Got to stain that that wooden tabletop though. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, she needs to get a bit of pledge on it. She's got a little bit <laughs> of devil in her, you know. Then yeah. she goes for a walk with a Prince of Wales check scarf wrapped round her head, uh, you know, yes. ignoring that that chorus of of ghostly wide mouths over her shoulder. Mm. <laughs> and walking past the gasworks as well. That was a nice shot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to do that because this is the time when gasworks was still, uh, you know, a trope in uh, in the Beano. Yeah, but even though people nowadays wouldn't necessarily get it this video is actually trying to communicate sophistication right in that yes. mid-80s manner it's about a year or two before yuppies were a craze right so she's unashamed to do this you wouldn't have made this video the same in 1987 like look at my nice house conversion in primrose hill you know yeah because you might as well have had flash frames of maggie thatcher dressed as britannia you know what i mean but in 1984 the coding is different, and this just says, yeah, yeah. you know, espresso machine and 50 quid to Nicaragua, you know what I mean? It's like, mm. uh, it's almost like a less hysterical version of what Style Council would do, and it's like, yeah. you know, youth CND people in 500 quid shoes and all that, but taking tokens of 
old black American music and trying to set them as symbols of dignity under oppression to draw a spurious link between black Americans of the 40s and 50s and citizens of Thatcher's Britain, you know. Mm. Um, and there's almost like a little bit of that, but it's very subtle in this, you know. It's a, it's not full-on international jet-set sophistication. It's a sort of middle-brow kind of art house cinema and Marks and Spencers urban yeah. sophistication. It's the locale of someone who's uh, got a record deal. Yeah, yeah. Got a bit of money to spend. Yeah, this it's all been styled to look like a photo print you might have seen hanging in a cafe that was under new management, you know. Mm. It's like yeah, this is a <laughs> this is somebody who, who drinks wine. Like there's none of your none of your unrefrigerated cans of long life for Alice of Moyet with a with her black clothes and a, a French name. You know what I mean? If you went in there and switched her telly on, it would, Channel 4 would come on. Mm. <laughs> if she even has a telly. Yes. <laughs> they have tried to undercut that slightly. I mean, she does start off in uh, in a calf, and she does have a little bit of a look of someone off EastEnders. You know, she's an, she's an yeah. Essex girl, and she kind of looks, you know... Um, yeah, but it's a nice calf, though, isn't it, Sarah? It's not, it is a nice it's not the calf. kind of place where anyone's going to put a fag out into a fried egg. <laughs> No, I mean she's got no one. No one on EastEnders had that much hot pink blush on, or could probably afford no. it. But you know, um, yeah, she has just got the most incredible makeup. That's another thing about 1984. Is I do that. That is, if I had to kind of assemble sort of ten immediate mental images, Alison Moyet's incredibly made up face would probably be one of them. You know, mm. um, it's all of the 1984 makeup all at once. <laughs> There's a lot of videos in this episode, and and it does yes, remind you that a lot is. of them were quite shoddy. See, the, this video and this record, um, I would say there's positive and negative about both, but none of the negative is down to Alison Moyet. Um, mm. She does what she's supposed to do uh, really well in both of them. What it is is she's cut loose from a group now and she's a solo artist and there's other people making decisions. Yeah. And the one thing that chafes a bit for me is the problem you quite often get with white soul records, which is kind of what this is, it's whether they choose to look to the past or the present because black music moves to its own rules and develops its own ways at its own speed. But white singers who sing like black singers are rarely part of that world, so they're not swept along by the same currents. So they don't just get taken wherever the music is going. And at some point, somebody has to make a conscious creative decision about how to write the song and how to arrange and produce it. And usually that comes down to a choice between trying to recreate the past and trying to reflect the present. Because mm. white artists who, who try to sound black are very rarely in control of the future. And none of this was an issue when Alice Moyer was in Yazoo because that was already yeah. a deliberate juxtaposition of styles. And you had that plinky-plonky white pop with this mm. husky diva voice. So it had its own corner, and the question never arose. But as soon as she goes solo, the decisions have to be made. What are these records going to sound like? And mm. they made what would have seemed at that point, and probably was, a sensible decision, which was to make them very contemporary, radio-friendly records. Um, yeah. And it was the right decision, I think, but also from this remove, a little bit unfortunate because it was 1984 and the sound hasn't aged that well. I like this record and I always did, but 
the serious sound of 1984 has aged far worse than the silly one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you compare this with, like I said, you compare this with an Amy Winehouse record. Well, the the logic there is, well, she's got an old-fashioned voice and she likes the old uh, blues and soul records and, and jazz singing. And mm. the songs are kind of written in that style. So let's make that the selling point. Let's arrange them like that, get the band to play in a sort of retro style and record and produce the records so they sound technically up to date but authentically old so it's all of a piece and it sounds reasonably authentic and that's artistically cowardly and culturally damaging but it does ensure you end up with a record that sounds great whereas this is a good record but it's a little bit separated from us by that 1984 sound and feel because to some extent the classy expensive sound of 1984 is about separation uh, of the listener and the artist. I mean, as you said, Sarah, the uh, we're getting a lot of videos in this episode, and but, but virtually all of them are, are full length as well, aren't they? We get to see everything. We get to see the end shot, which is really nice, of her sort of um, on her balcony. And I like to think she's living next door to uh, Tears for Fears. And, yeah, uh, yeah, she's yeah. just She's going, well, my life's shit, my bloke's left me, but look at fucking Roland Orbazel there, dancing like a twat. <laughs> Whatever else you say for Alison Ware, she wouldn't have done that ever, not ever. Um, I don't know. It looks like she's round. I like to think she's round at Freddie Mercury's. That looks like Freddie Mercury's house to me, or maybe George Michael's. <laughs> That's a sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just. Yeah, I'm just getting. I'm, I'm just kind of creaming off all the sitcom ideas from this episode. So those two girls. No. Taking the piss out of Simon Bates and Alison Moyer, Freddie Mercury, and George Michael all yeah. hanging out. She's one of those people, Alison Moyer, that nobody seems to have a, a bad word for, right? Yeah. Because she's a pretty yeah. good singer. And she seems all right, which, you know, that's a lot of currency in pop music where Mm. so few people meet either of those standards. Um, I just think she suffered a little bit from being a singer rather than a creator at a time in pop history when it was it was a bit tricky for people like her. So, yeah, of course, in a couple of years, she was singing that old devil called Love and being styled as a coffee shop singer because there was sort of nowhere else for her to go. Like compared to someone Mm. like Tracy Thorne who had a similar kind of voice, but a slightly more interesting career, albeit one that was a less commercial mm. and more haphazard, you know. Also, the problem she had, she likes to be known by her nickname, Alf, if you remember. That was the title of her album, Alf. Which, she was a bit undermined by the emergence of Alf, the unlovable <laughs> rubber puppet <laughs> alien life form, right? It did her no favours at all. I remember being in the newsagents when I was at school, in the lunch break and picking up the ALF annual 1986 or whatever it was with his horrible face on the front and saying, I love <laughs> Alison Moyet, don't you? But, you know, back in the days when a joke was just a joke and kids were little cunts, you know, and uh, but it didn't do her much good. And now, of course, she's back in pog form. It's <laughs> a, a Simpsons reference, maybe too deep for a general reason. No, it's not. But no, this is, a, this is the problem that, um, I mean, Lamol had it in a way. You know, all these people spinning off from groups and going solo. And it's yeah. it's hard. Um, I mean, I've got to say that uh, Alison Moyer had it easier than people like Lamar and Nick Haywood. Because if you're a male lead singer of a band, you're the leader of a gang. Even if the gang happens to be Kajagoogoo. <laughs> going off on your own, you haven't got that backup anymore. Yeah. I, I think she did a, a little bit better than them too. Yeah, well, she's still, you know, she's made like eight or nine albums, I think it is now. She's been like steadily working the whole time. Mm. It's always like, it's always heartening when somebody has 
obviously has enough about them to just you know to to survive the music industry in the yeah. in the eighties. You know, it's um, it's very heartening. So the following week, all cried out. Stayed at number eight for the fourth week Fucking before up. slipping down the charts. I know. The follow-up, Invisible, got lost in the Christmas rush, eventually getting to number 21 in January of 1985. But the next release, That Old Devil Called Love, got to number two for two weeks in March of 85, held off the number one spot by Easy Lover by Philip Bailey with Phil Collins. at the moment. Alison Moyer all cried out. For the first time in ever in the history, a man has hit the number one spot in the American pop, soul and R&B charts. It's this man here, Billy Ocean, number nine. alone on a podium tells us that for the first time ever in the history of everything a man has got to number one in the US pop, soul and R&B charts it's Billy Ocean with Caribbean Queen Born in Trinidad and Tobago in 1950, Leslie Charles moved with his family to Romford at the age of seven and eventually divided his time between being a part-time singer and a full-time pattern cutter on Savile Row After his debut single flopped in 1969, leading him to get in the sack when his boss heard it being played by Annie Nightingale on Radio 1, he joined a local band called Shades of Midnight and then another one called Scorched Earth. In 1975, he signed a solo deal with GTO Records and his first single, Love Really Hurts Without You, went all the way to number two in March of 1976, held off the top spot by Save All Your Kisses For Me. After two more top 20 hits, he got to number two again with Red Light Spells Danger in April of 1977, which was denied its rightful place at number one by Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA. A year later, GTO were bought out by CBS and Ocean was lost in the shuffle and seemingly done as a chart artist with seven flop singles on the bounce. Then, in the summer of 1984, he put out his first single on his new label, Jive, European Queen. It only got to number 82 in June of that year over here, but it went the absolute fuck off in America under the title Caribbean Queen. And it's already been the US number one for two weeks. So it's been re-released over here under that title. It finally broke into the top 40 a fortnight ago. And it's up this week from number 12 to number nine. Yeah, very strange tale, the European Caribbean queen. Yeah. Yeah, why would you Why would you do that? I think it's the connotations. I think it's, I mean, European queen sounds like some old Dutch woman cycling to the palace well it could mean i mean think of all the the the, the many things that would uh you know what's the first what's the first country that you'd go to you know in your mind yeah. <laughs> who who lives there yeah and also it's like why has this not been my first thought about this was why has this not been taken up by like the fbpe remain <laughs> twitter people 
Mm. You know, why they're not singing that outside uh, on, on College Green? You know, there's a contingent yes. of... Uh, of protest. Well, there's there's one guy who who just yells "Stop Brexit" very loudly all the time between I think yeah. nine a.m. and seven p.m. Yeah. There was a guy with a xylophone recently on the news, which was fucking hysterical. Anyway, yeah. looking up that that version, it sounds better actually. I'm not sure why. I mm. I need to like dig into why that is, but um, it does actually sound better than the version that that has now ended up on top of the pops. It's kind of weird, just that there being. I'm I'm kind of marveling at like this this kind of different versions thing because it's like why was no one else doing this? You know, it's kind of, it's like, but it's like the pop equivalent of, you know, those like personalized number plates with people's names on that you used to get in the spinny yes. racks everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, do you have to do yeah. like... Mr. Won't you tell me where my lover's gone? He's a Moroccan boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just do all of them. It's like, oh, that's where I live. That's me. Yes. You know, it's a good business model, I would have thought. But of course, if Billy Ocean is singing European Queen, that's the, uh, the pretty... Obvious uh, implication there is of uh, racial mixing, mm. whereas uh, for as long as he's singing Caribbean Queen, it's like the slow dance at the end of the school disco in Grange Hill, you know. Yes. <laughs> it's like the black lad and the black girl. Oh, guess what? They got a lot in common. Um, <laughs> uh, I like how we follow the sort of very 1984 London sophistication of the Alison Moyet track. With mm. this one, with the opening line, she dashed by me in painted on jeans. There's <laughs> like a wolf whistle. It's the, yeah. it's a really different vision of sophistication. It's very American, <laughs> very eighties soul. Um, yeah. Baby like, makes her blue jeans talk. Eh, yeah. Her? Oh God. Yeah. Well, it's like it, you know, it's like Alison Moyet's matte finish, and this is gloss. You know, it's bit, <laughs> sort the... of tacky, but you know it's there. That's a very interesting. <laughs> It's a very interesting verb to use, though. Why would she dash by? That that sounds. Yeah, I you could know. think of a couple of reasons. <laughs> a table full of Billy Ocean and his mates. Yeah, <laughs> wolf whistle. Sitting outside with the outside the pub with lagers at three in the afternoon. <laughs> but if you've ever if you've ever worn painted on jeans, they're they're not easy to dash in. You know, <laughs> no. you're sort of tottering is more the the the, the speed, mm. really. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of chafing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she can't have dashed very far, though, because no. they end up getting together. And uh, later in the song, he says, she said I was the tiger she wanted to tame. Mm. Imagine saying that to Billy Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> He's the cuddliest, smiliest tiger in town, right? His smile <laughs> is so big, it looks like his head has had to have an extension built on to fit it on. <laughs> Right, he's but you know maybe in private he he gnaws on hunks of raw antelope, and is the national symbol of Bangladesh. I don't know. <laughs> There's another bit. I mean, the lyrics in this once you get into them, I mean, it is you know it, it really does make blasphemous rumours sound like um, I don't know Keats or something. Because um, it it's yeah um, in the is it in the blink of an eye I had her number and her name. I mean, maybe he had to put it that way to scan, but it's like, hang on, in the yeah. blink of an I eye... I notice a priority, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, why is that Why is that first? What? You, oh, by the way, you know, by the way, I'm Sharon, you know. But mm. there's a lot of dashing and a lot of blinks of eyes, and it's all happening. It's all happening so fast. I can't keep up. Belly Ocean don't fuck about, dog. <laughs> he don't fuck about, does he? But yeah, the, the grin, he's so... Like, I always... It's always really endearing to me to see... 
people having a really nice, happy time on top of the pops. Mm. I've probably yes. gone on about this before, but like whatever else is, you know, however, however bad the song is or however kind of forgettable, it's like that person has had a lovely time. And, you know, it could be that, you know, they were three weeks away from dying of booze and drugs or, you know, their their mm. manager was torturing them with twigs. <laughs> but on the state, and they just, they just look dead chuffed. And Billy Ocean yeah. is, is properly serving that in, in a very big way. Well, it's vindication, isn't it? He, he wouldn't have been on Top of the Pops for about, God, nine years? Yeah. Remember this song came out, didn't give a toss about it, but it was like, oh, Billy Ocean's back. That's brilliant. It's like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Hong Kong Fooey gets shown again on uh, on the telly. It's like, oh, brilliant. I used to love this when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I realised what this is. This is so, so familiar to me, this track. But listening to it now, having not heard it in years and years, um, I went, oh, God, it's like Bubblegum Billy Jean. Yeah, yeah. It's a yes. complete ripoff. And I was like, oh, yes. I never fucking know. It's, it's so weird being that familiar with both of those tracks and just going, oh, my God, it's like Happy Billy Jean, like Bouncy Castle Billy Jean. Billy Jean actually is my lover, you know. <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're both very happy. Yeah. And it really thinks it's got away with it as well. It thinks yes. that nobody's going to notice. Oh, That's the funniest but thing. But all the little sound effects to illustrate the lines, just in case you hadn't got the point. Like, the wolf whistle, I'd completely forgotten the wolf whistle, and I almost was like, ah, oh my God, a fucking wolf whistle. And the, for the best bit, obviously, is the, you know, the electric eyes line, electric eyes that follow me everywhere, and meow! There's like, <laughs> there's like a laser noise. And then there's there's mention of her perfume and how much it excites him, and there's some, like, lusty puffing in the background. Yeah, it's yeah. like somebody is pantomiming it all out. It's incredible. I really yeah. like this record. Um, I think it's really impossible to dislike, um, which is funny because back in in the eighties, I really hated Billy Ocean. I think it was partly his his big animal quackers face, uh, which is a bit scary, <laughs> and partly because I hated him for singing a song called "When the Going Gets Tough." Brackets the tough get. There's going. no brackets in it. There's no mm. brackets. That's the whole title. Not? No, there's no, no parentheses. I it. was astonished to discover this mm. myself because I, 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 I did go and look it up, and it's like I'm sure there are brackets in there, but no. I didn't. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. <laughs> but, it's, but it's like because it's it's as if the point of pop music is to deal in bland motivational cliches, you know, rather than yeah. destroy them or subvert them. It's like his follow up was going to be sing like no one's listening. Dance like nobody's yes. watching, or you know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Um, he yeah. does it again. He won't like nobody else in status quo gives a toss. <laughs> but he does it here as well. There's that line about two hearts beating as one, which makes me want to mm. puke. Like just presenting yeah. cliches smugly like that, like with a little yeah. uh, like it was a newly minted wisdom. Um, mm. And I hated him because he always wore loose suit trousers with a crease down the front with slip-on tuxedo yes. shoes and that's a horrible combination so it should be mm. reserved for the the compare of the royal variety performance 1978 yeah. Yeah. but <laughs> yeah. this is really good i think because it does what mid-80s pop soul and pop r&b records do well which is to instantly create a mood and an atmosphere and then just live in it and invite you to live in it. Yeah. And you'd be happy if it went on for an hour, you know. And it also pulls off the musical trick, which a lot of these records are good at, where the hook 
is just based on a chord change and a slight melody shift, which is actually quite big and expansive. And if you did it in a rock record, it would be arranged to sound pompous and ringing, you know. But it's actually yeah. done in a really understated way. So there's just a little shift in the groove and a slight deviation and a slightly more heartfelt singing, so you know it's the chorus. But the space that's been opened up by that chord progression is still there. It's just that no one's, you know, forcing your head into it like they would if it was U2 mm. or something, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's a record made by people who know what they're doing because... You know, it's gimmicky with the sound effects and the lifted thriller stuff, you know, and the the Caribbean shout-out, which, you know, is uh, one eye on, you know, uh, you from the Caribbean, buy this record. But the actual (laughs) gears of the the track move in a quite a neat and subtle way. Mm. I mean, uh, the great thing about it is he, he settles the argument about the pronunciation of Caribbean, doesn't he? Yeah. Because some people think it's Caribbean. Yeah, but he's British. That's, that's Americans. Why. Americans, usually, yeah. I used to get into really intense arguments with an ex-girlfriend. She'd say Caribbean, and I'd say Caribbean. And I just said, well, how does Billy Ocean say it? And she went, yeah, but what about Caribbean disco show? And I went, oh, no, 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 no. That's Lobo. He's Dutch. Uh-huh. He was born in Holland. Right. You're going to listen to a Dutchman, or are you going to listen to Billy Ocean, Doug? Yeah. The other great thing about this performance is Billy's kind of like been presented with the uh, conundrum of I'm double tracked on this single do I try and mime everything and he pointedly doesn't yeah. mm. good for him he took his stance and then did a kind of a toned down chicken dance yeah, yeah. during the middle eight yeah that was his thing just sort of shuffling yeah. and sliding around the shiny floor yeah Caribbean Queen jumped up three places to number six where it stayed for two weeks it's highest position He repeated the location-based trick one more time when he put out African Queen in South Africa, where it got to number seven. The follow-up, Loverboy, got to number 15, and his mid-80s flourish culminated in February of 1986 when when the going gets tough, the tough get going, got to number one for four weeks. (laughs) Hoo-ha-ha, (laughs) hoo-hoo. Number one by Wham. Okay, here's Chicago. It's soft, it's slushy, it's done the worst for that on top of the pops. It's a hard habit to break. Bates, with his hands all over the maidens again tells us that Billy Ocean has just been usurped in the US by Wham. He then wants to introduce us to something that's soft, slusher, but none the worse for that. His (laughs) cock. No, no, it's Hard Habit to Break by Chicago. And that is another beautifully backhanded Bates introduction. It's, Mm. it's, It's shit. It's nothing spectacular. But give it a chance here yeah. on top of don't, it. Don't no, knock it. Room for everyone. It's the way he says, yeah. it's none the worse for that on top of the pops as well, which is just babble. Yeah. But it's his yeah. instinctive, 
constant name checking of the program. You remember when we did a live episode where he kept doing time checks? Yes. It's the same thing as that. He's mm. a real radio man. He's mm. conditioned into doing everything that program producers would tell him to do, which is like mm. keep naming the station you're listening to, keep giving yeah. the wavelength, keep telling the time. He can't shake it off. Mm. So he just defaults to it whenever he's in doubt, which is quite often, even though it makes no sense on television. Because no. there's nothing else in his head except for, you know, quiet rage. <laughs> Burning resentment. Yeah. 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 Formed in Chicago in 1967, the big thing were a covers band who moved to Los Angeles a year later, changed their name to the Chicago Transit Authority, took up a residency at the Whiskey A Go Go, and signed to CBS. In 1969, they put out a debut double LP, which stayed in the American LP chart for over three years and got to number nine over here. They were lined up to play at Woodstock, but had to pull out at the last minute when Bill Graham made them reschedule a gig at the Fillmore West, leaving Santana to take their place. In 1970, now simply known as Chicago, when the actual Chicago Transit Authority threatened legal action, they scored two top ten hits in the UK. I'm a man and 25 or 6 to 4, which got to number 8 in July and number 7 in August, and then no other hits until the winter of 1976, when If You Leave Me Now relieved us of the hell of Mississippi by Pussycat and stayed there for three weeks before being usurped by Under the Moon of Love by Show Waddy Wadde. When the follow-up, Baby What a Big Surprise, stalled at number 41 in late 1977, it commenced a five-year trial separation between the band and the UK charts, but they roared back in late 1982 when Hard to Say I'm Sorry got to number four in October of that year. This single is off their most recent LP, Chicago 17, and is the follow-up to Stay the Night, which failed to chart. And this week it soared from number 39 to number 21. Oh, well, here we go. This is video cliche number two, I believe, Taylor, isn't it? I think it is. Well, I, well there's a few. There's yes. uh, model, quotes girlfriend, far mm. too young and attractive for the singer, in boudoir with light streaming in through the windows, chops down House of Cards with the edge of her hand. Yes. Um, well, that's nothing compared to what he did when they got home from the posh restaurant where the waiter took his order, then turned to her and said, and for your lovely daughter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> although I should say, if anyone really loves these would-be sexy videos by mm. unsexy and slightly too old American bands, do check out the video for uh, So You Ran by Orion the Hunter, Ooh. which is the finest ever example of the genre. Put it on the playlist. It's impossible to believe Ooh. it's for real. Oh, and, yeah, alert uh, 2A, woman drinks from glass, then hurls glass across room. Yay! Yeah, of course. It's a classic. There's also the, uh, you know, because this is a two-hander, this, and there's a... Uh, Peter Satira and other other Chicago bloke. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what status quo used to say. <laughs> <laughs> Not in Rick Parfit's case, I've heard. Oh, well, really? Mm. You asked Debbie Ashby about that. Oh, really? Yeah, but no. <laughs> Well, maybe he's a quoer, not a shower. <laughs> oh, bravo, <laughs> madam, bravo. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, the sort of 
faces fading fading in and out over over the sort of overlay of of one face and a, and and another face in the uh, in the same frame mm. i like to pretend that you know even though they are supposedly singing this to a woman they're actually singing it to each other and they just couldn't overtly Ooh. do that then but you know but it's in there except it's not because this is some of the straightest shit you ever could hear yeah it's it's bad isn't it i mean of the many many songs that compare love to addiction i think this is probably the least drugs of them all <laughs> like if this song were a drug it would be paracetamol yes or, or no, no it would be the bullshit cold and flu stuff phenylephrine in it i think instead of pseudoephedrine this is how like this is how you remember what the good stuff is is it's got pseudoephedrine in it so you have to remember that it's the wrong way around because that is the pseudo stuff is the true stuff but it's not even right. It's not even day nurse with pseudoephedrine in it. It's Wilco's own cold and flu. Yeah. It doesn't do shit. Yeah. Oh, it's probably not even a drug. I mean, it's like a, a like a hobby. You can't have enough of. Like I don't know, fishing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this shit was starting to become rife by 1984, wasn't it? In the UK charts. Yeah. Thanks to Jonathan King. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a real kind of plodding and sort of self pitying kind of mess. And I mean, I have a I actually have a very high tolerance for this kind of oral aesthetic. Generally, the sort of John Hughes soundtrack. Mm. tinkly twinkly winsome candy floss of synth and everything compressed to a shadow of its former self but this is like i've definitely hit my limit with this yeah you can imagine the record company's going oh fucking hell just get some get some models in now yeah and a lot of them posing around naked but covering everything up like a shower gel advert it's it's (laughs) tasteful isn't it well you think you're gonna see summer and you never do yeah and there's that, that one of them's got a fag on the go as well, which yeah. is always funny to see as a as a signifier of sophistication. Yes, in old, uh, old videos. But it's a shame the band couldn't have uh, made a bit more of an effort. I've got to say because it's like yeah, <laughs> Peter Satira looks like Jason Donovan's dad. Yes, um, <laughs> you know, and he's got like a really badly matched jacket and shirt. And a bass round his neck just to show that he's a musician, you mm. know. Oh, it's really bad. Big white fake teeth like Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> also, the, you can tell that this is another kind of fabulous 1980s video and performance cliche, I think, is the... Um, does that qualify as Hadley fist? I think it does. Ooh. There's a bit of Hadley fist in there. Yes. It's a clenched fist that means it's the international sign language for I really mean this. Yes. And it's like, I have stopped, I mean this so much that I have stopped playing my instrument, which requires both of my hands in order to clench this fist accordingly. Because it's more important right now that I show how much I mean it. And the chords are standing out in my neck. Also in terms of image, uh, this is around time we see the re-entry of beards into (laughs) music that's in the know. Now, it's harder to see that now than it was then. You know, because back then you would just point and laugh. You know, hey, he's got a beard. Um, nowadays, it's a it's a trickier issue. I mean, it's probably a good thing that the total ban on beards was lifted purely because freedom is a nice thing, right? Mm. But I do sort of miss the days when shaving at least once a week was seen as a basic part of human dignity. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's like... Because the kids do default to being hippies and dickheads mm. if you fail to rein them in with fashion. 
Um, so you give them an inch, and next thing you know, it's considered acceptable to walk around with a, a giant bale of pubic hair hanging off your oh, face. Oh, yeah. You know? And I mean, like, to any of our listeners who look like that, and there may be one or two, I don't mean you, all right? Yes. Just keep giving us <laughs> the same money. Mate. Yeah, it looks great. Now, uh, but the rest of these cunts, right? Yeah. I, I mean, my attitude normally would be do what you like, more birds for the rest of us. But the thing, I've actually got a bit of a phobia of tangled, glistening whiskers. Right? I'm absolutely fine with a like a sort of a manageable beard. It's when it comes out and starts to have a life of its own. Yeah. Um, separate from the from the the face. Uh, yeah. That's when I, yeah, it makes me feel yeah. a bit uneasy, with or without eggs stuck in it. So when one of these things is coming towards me in the street, I have to put my hand up like mm. blinkers. And I have to try and, you know, so as not to offend, you know, middle-class men in their 30s. I sort of oof, put my hand up like that so I can't see it. Uh, yeah. I sort of, I don't like it, you know. Mm. I don't like it. It's also, there's always that suspicion that people have, grown this beard in lieu of a personality you know mm. a lot of people think it will make them look interesting rather than look like a clone which or is, a paedophile you know. geography teacher right yeah but it's mm. when it gets beyond the point of that where mm. it's like uh you know they cultivate it like it was an achievement you know like they should be complimented on growing it like it's yeah like so but the whole point of it is it's there because of something that you haven't done <laughs> it's like well done you you failed to bother to shave your face for as long as six months. Mm. Well, you know, you go. Um, yeah. But probably what makes me really cross is that this is lads of about 25, 30, ruining yeah. it for the oldens because yes. a beard is meant to be something you grow in middle age to disguise a collapsing jawline. Yes. And now we can't do it, no. even if we need to, because yeah. of these yep. fuckers. Yeah, and yeah, you know what? Just imagine the fatbergs that are going to be emanating from the drains oh, God. when everyone realises that it's gone out of fashion and they've got to shave their beards, man. Oh, it's not oh, going to no. be good, is it? Yeah. And I live in East London. Jesus Christ. Oh, what mate. happened last Christmas with my <laughs> toilet exploding? Yes. There'd be nothing compared to this. Oh, tell her, it's going to be like Dave Lee Travis exploding from your toilet. <laughs> Where else? Yeah, no, I, I remember this happening, and it was, a, you know, an extremely traumatic thing where it's just, uh, you know, uh, Thames Water just uh, decided to to throw your entire house to to hell. Um, yeah. But like, is that the, better or worse than Good this track? Good point, well made, Sarah. Like, well, where where is this track on a scale of one to your to toilet explosion? I, I got a, at least I got a good story out of that. Which I singularly <laughs> no. failed to do with this record because I got almost nothing to say about it. But you no, but you did. You did manage to, you know, um, get have a little therapeutic kind of, you know, uh, you managed to get it all out about about beards and you know. Yeah. So I think I think yeah. this has been a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought I'd have loads to say about Chicago and this kind of. AOR, you know, mm. more generally. Well, when we get round to, if you leave me now, then I'm sure there'll be much to say about Chicago. I but don't this... know. I don't know. I mean, appropriately enough, I suppose, I look into my head and it's just perfumed empty space. It's like, there doesn't seem mm. to be anything. I mean, I say appropriately because I think when you're a soft rock band and you're onto your, what is it, 17th album, Yeah, you've stopped making music, really. You've started mm. making sounds to fit around the empty space. And, I mean, this is a, yeah. quite a, 
a busy and quite a songy song with the sort of McCartney bits in it and the very musicianly breakdowns and stuff. And it's presented as an emotional statement. But you listen to it and what you really hear is empty space hemmed Mm. in by these kind of quite vague vocal and instrumental noises. Yeah. Like a a square version of ambient music, you know. But it's... (laughs) potentially interesting approach to music just executed in a desperately boring way yeah because i mean i've heard this song fucking loads of times and all i can remember if you ask me to sing it now all i could do is sing you're a hard habit to break yeah that's the whole point of the song it all if yeah. it, it's like you know there is a house of cards that it is represented quite quite aptly by the house mm. cards it's like that's mm. just the one on the top that's quite impressive or that that works and everything else is just mm. there to support that you know yeah there's a brief there's the briefest there's like a soup song of a saxophone solo yeah. in there. Because, you know, I, 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 at some point, please, somebody um, chart the saxophone solo. And I want to know when peak saxophone solo happened. Mm. I don't think it was. I think we were way off it at this point. But mm. but it's weird. It's very, very, it, it's a sort of fleeting saxophone solo, which then is kind of overtaken by a kind of horn pileup. This is sort of disintegration. <laughs> I guess it's meant to sort of evoke the, the chaos of his intense feelings. Yeah about how hard a habit this person is to break. Yeah, but he scrunched his fist up. That's all you can do, mate. Yeah, but how do you how do you scrunch up a, what is this the oral equivalent of a scrunched up fist? I believe it is. It's the musical, you know, how do you convey that? It's like, well, apparently mm. this is how. Oh, I'm sick of talking about this fucking song. Let's move on. <laughs> Me too. The following week, yeah, Hard this. Habit to Break jumped 10 places from number 21 to number 11. And the week after that, it began a two-week squat in the number eight slot. The follow-up, You're the Inspiration, got to number 14 for two weeks in February of 1985. But after the band refused to let Peter Satira pursue a solo career in between tours like Phil Collins had done with Genesis, he fucked off in the summer of that year. And although they never bothered with the UK charts again, they still exist with three original members to this day.
Bates and Skinner coped down Chicago for not having that many hits in the UK before breaking down the charts from number 40 to number 26 and then wheeling back and coming forward with Berserker by Gary Newman. We've discussed the new many a time and often. By this point in his career, he's freed himself from his deal with Beggar's Banquet and set up his own label, Numa Records. This is the title and first cut from his new self-released LP, which comes out tomorrow, and this performance is the debut of his new look. Blue pigmented lips, eyebrows and hair. More importantly, it's the Top of the Pops debut of Gary's new hair transplant, which he recommends to readers of Smash Hits and the latest issue, even though it hurts a lot. The single, like the LP, named after a series of Fred Saberhagen books from the 1960s about a load of self-replicating robots who want to give planet Earth a proper biffing, is the follow-up to Sister Surprise, which got to number 32 in October of 1983 and was his worst performing single to date. This was a new entry at number 38 last week, and this week it's up six places to number 32. This is a bit of a crossroads time for Gary Newman, isn't it? He did a Q&A in this week's Smash Hits and was asked, do you ever wonder that you're down the dumper? His response was, not really. These sort of things really happen overnight. It tends to be a gradual slide and you can see when it's coming. For me, especially now I've got the record company, I think it would be very easy and in some ways quite nice to just slip underneath now and go behind things more. I've had a good run. Level-headed attitude. Oh, I bet the PR company were very happy with that response. (laughs) Yeah, you can usually see these things slipping gradually, says the man at number 38 in the charts. Just like his hair. The thing is, though, this came on and I, I looked at it and I just thought, well... That's showbiz mm. because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's only a couple of years since his ridiculousness looked like one particular channel of the future. And now yeah. it just looks ridiculous because the world has turned around him and because he's, he's drained his non-genius quota of good ideas. Mm. So all you're left with now is just some idiot with blue lips mm. and he's singing a song with no tune and... Looking like a leftover. But what can he do? You know, it's not his fault. All he can do is his level best. And sadly, that's now what this is. And I find this listenable just for the lessons it's learnt from late 70s, early 80s Bowie records. But Mm. the overpowering wazziness (laughs) is just no fun anymore. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot more than that. I just, he's so watchable. I mean, he is, you know, he is a proper pop star. He's a proper practised pop star. And, you know, yeah, he looks, yeah. you know, properly absurd. And yes, at this point, it is that is kind of looking uh, like a kind of a, a bit of a, a recent throwback. Because, mm. I mean, we, we were trying to you were trying to identify and pin down the appeal of the, the appeal of Lamal, which is quite tricky yeah. to do. But I wonder if Gary Newman holds the key to this, because like Lamal does look like, you know, he looks absurd, but he looks quite ordinary at the same time. And, you know, that's Gary Newman's entire thing is that he's he's a sort of alien being. And it's like maybe people at this point were sort of, you know, they, they wearied of, of the kind of um, intergalactic deities and they just wanted like next door humans, mm. you know. And it's like maybe that was the way that things were going. I'm just pulling this completely from my ass. But, you know, I mean, because this they're really going for it. And it but in a, in a very, like I said, in a very practiced way. And there's seven of them on the stage. 
and they're all in yeah. white uniforms, most of them with spectacular mullets. And they all look like they just landed from the planet space fiction. <laughs> but it's a proper performance and he's a proper performer. And Limal, bless him, you know, sweet lad, but just no charisma to speak of at all. Mm. And then you see someone like this and you go, oh, yeah, no, that's the thing. And yeah, I mean, Top of the Pop's always been a broad church. So, of course, you're going to, you know, have to. But yeah, the, the audience isn't really into it very much, are they? They're quite. No. They're sort of quite polite. No yeah. Um, wouldn't, just wouldn't want to be seen by your mates grooving to a Gary Newman record no. at this point in time. No. Things had turned around really quickly. And was, what you're saying, I was thinking, what's turned around in uh, the culture of pop music is when he was big, uh, people wanted you to be really freaky artistically, mm. but just be a normal bloke behind yeah. the scenes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, whereas now, they want bands who are just like lads and kind of regular geezers, but behind the scenes, they're swanning around Sri Lanka and stuff. You know mm. what I mean? Living it up. <laughs> it's gone back to that sort of, that kind of rock star world. And he, he couldn't fit into that no. more poorly because he is just a geek, you know, mm. um, who likes dressing up. And it's just, it's all the wrong way around for the time. Yeah. But it's, although he does give it his all here, he's really let down by his bands because he's got the whole band dressed in those white uniforms mm. and it's meant to look futuristic and dystopian and alien and all that gear. Yeah. But in fact, they look like they're working on a cruise ship yes. where standards have really been allowed to slip. It's like, uh, excuse me, there's a, there's a blue hair in my soup. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. That's a, it's the, the chef Lance Percival just discovered he gets seasick. <laughs> but but he, the thing is, He's got the same problem that a lot of these people have, which is that not everyone can put as much work into seeming alien and inhuman as Gary does. Mm. So even if you buy into his performance as something more than a a 19th-hand Bowie job stranded in time, you're still left with the cold visual fact of session men with yokel faces wearing these costumes as a job and trying not to dad dance around the stage too obtrusively you know mm. and his female backing singer looks like she should be reading the regional news for wales and the west yes the most disturbing thing visually as you say is he's just had a hair transplant right mm. and you can really tell and it's one of those old style ones from before they got good yeah you know you didn't get that sort of almost natural looking you know lustrous hair you get now it was like they just plunged hanks of hair into your skull (laughs) like a doll head and it would all point in different directions and it never sat right and they were also famously unreliable in terms of it falling back out again Mm. which i think happened to russ abbott um and and this cunt's dyed it blue yeah that's just that's really asking for trouble you know what i mean i'll just i'll just put this blue hair dye in my uh my unstable fresh hair yeah, but he's oh, of course God. he's got a proper modern one now. He's gone and had it done again, and it looks good. Good. Well, I liked it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I know that I, I I know what you mean, but like I just kind of didn't have that angle on it. I suppose. I mean, I just thought, yeah, no. this is a this is a slick operation, and they're doing the thing where they're like, okay, well, it's top of the pops. Let's actually do the top of the pops thing, and that's their mm. their vision of the top of the pops thing, which is a little bit sort of shonky around the edges in certain ways and you yeah. know around around the hairline but that's all right i'm all right with this um and i don't find it embar- i don't yeah. find it but emba- you know i didn't look at that and go oh god oh he's so washed up oh, i find it really embarrassing because 
I just always think of mm. Gary Newman as a proper a proper pop star, and there's a, it, you know it's kind of yeah it's really in his genes, you know it's really in his uh, you know he just mm. he just is that, and he is genuinely a strange bloke. He doesn't have to like reach for that, you know that is who he is, and it's not necessarily a perfect expression of that, but um, you know he's doing the thing that Gary Newman is going to do, which is authentic to Gary Newman. So you know mm. I never find that when I can see that that's kind of someone's being genuine in in what they're doing, then. You know, I can never cringe at that, really. I mean, this is the first performance we've come across where there's an actual band on the stage playing proper instruments. So Gary Newman's become a traditional pop star. Mm. He's really dated here. But in another way, he's a pioneer because, you know, with that interview in Smash Hits, he's essentially turned himself into a cottage industry for for a hardcore of fans, which is what pretty much all pop artists are nowadays. Yeah, and what we were saying about how he's been left in the past, that's not quite true because, yeah, Mm. the Numenoids were now a tiny cult which had ossified Mm. and they were holding on tight in defiance of the changing times. I mean, as much as the 80s metalers were, you know, and I Mm. don't know, I don't think you still get those stubbornly immobile subcultures these days. Do you know what I mean? Like self-sustaining and set Mm. apart from from fashion or, or, or changing culture. I mean, you know, like this indie guitar music, which has been paralysed for about 25 years, but they still sort of mm. think of themselves as current, you know. Um, they yeah. don't see themselves as living in a bubble. I mean, you don't, is there a group of kids preserving a, a tiny subculture against the, the harsh winds of time? I, I don't think so. It's like no. if you had like 15,000 ravers with glow sticks and global hypercolor t-shirts and they're still only listening to like you know charlie by the prodigy or something you'd see him around acting like a tribe you know i don't think he's he's cultivated a fan base that have grown old with him yeah Mm. that's what he's doing and that's pretty much the perfect business model nowadays isn't it it's true yeah i hate to raise the specter of quo again at this point but um there's another uh just speaking of you know looking after your fans they uh there's another uh, a different poster for this album, which um, uh, has a tagline, the only critic we care about is you. <laughs> yeah, I can tell that from the f- way that you've just raised the subject <laughs> of critics on your poster for yes. no reason. Yes. Yeah. So, but what if, you know, if you're a critic and you're walking by, then it's like, oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, you've always been my <laughs> favourite. Yeah. yeah. Did you see that and, and feel genuinely touched? Yeah. Oh, it warmed, it warmed <laughs> me cockles. So the following week, Berserker dropped five places to number 37. And by the beginning of December, the LP would only get to number 45 and spent a mere three weeks on the album chart. The follow-up, My Dying Machine, fared even worse, getting to number 66 on the last chart of 1984. And bar getting to number 17 in March of 1985 with Change Your Mind with Bill Sharp of Shack Attack, he would spend the rest of the decade as a lower top 40 regular at best. Band earlier on, and they were saying they've only got one white suit each for a 20-day tour. They're going to need a very good kind of soap powder. This week's 25, the War Song by Culture Club. 
Virgil Sharkey, listen to your father's 24. At 23, I'm going to tear your playhouse down by Paul Young. 22, got to get you home tonight by Eugene Wilde. Chicago are at 21 with hard habits to break. At 20, Aces High by Iron Maiden. Meatloaf, Modern Girl at number 19. At 18, it's Penny Lover by Lionel Richie. 17, Drive the Cars. I'm so excited to point the sisters at 16. Number 15, Missing You by John Waite. Stevie Wonders, I just called to say I love you at 14. Number 13, I Should Have Known Better by Jim Diamond. Ultravox at number 12 with Love's Great Adventure. And at 11, Give Me All Your Loving by ZZ Top. Here is Eugene Wilde now with a song he wrote in the lonely London hotel room last May. Gotta get you home tonight. Standing alone in front of the word charts on the big screen tells us he's had a chat with Gary Newman's band about their laundry issues before running down the chart from number 25 to number 11. Simon, you nosy bastard. <laughs> but it's a lesson in how not to time a gag as well. The way mm. does, they're going to need a very good kind of soap powder. Yeah, yeah, that's the way he tells him. Yeah, have a word with Depeche Mode. I think he, he stretched it out as well, a good kind of soap powder. Oh. He's just obsessed with the state of other people's laundry, man. That's not a good look, Simon. No, it really isn't. We cut to Skinner on a podium. Skinner's been on his own all the time, just standing on this podium away from Bates. Yeah. They've been split up like a pair of naughty schoolboys, so they can't make each other worse. Mm. And he tells us that the next single was written in a London hotel room. Fucking hell, he's at it now. Regurgitating the press release is what he's doing. Mm. The song is Gotta Get You Home Tonight by Eugene Wilde. Born in North Miami Beach in 1961, Ronald Broomfield spent the late 70s as a member of the family group La Voyage, which played in local clubs and later changed their name to Tight Connection and then Simplicious before he joined the band Today, Tomorrow, Forever. In the early 80s, he became a solo artist, changing his name to Eugene Wilde. In 1984, he signed a deal with Philly World Records and this is his debut single. It's already been a Billboard R&B slash hip-hop number one. And this week, it's nipped up two places from number 24 to number 22. And here he is in the studio with his nice suit for 1984 and Princey Buffont. Oh, before we get stuck into this song, the chart pictures, as always in this era, Taylor, are depressingly uh, competent. I mean, there's only two I noticed which was Lionel Richie looking like he's getting ready to go out line dancing <laughs> and Meatloaf looking as if his genitals are being licked by a bear. <laughs> you know, half enjoying it, half absolutely terrified. <laughs> I almost didn't recognise Meatloaf. He, he was, uh, you know, th- mm. this is uh, a very a very, uh, a very, young and fresh, fresh-faced Meatloaf, I didn't mm. think, which I didn't think existed. No. Years ago, when I used to live in Cricklewood, there was a shop called Food Giant which was like a big sort of cash and carry type supermarket. We had one of them. Yeah, 
And it's like, I was always thought that's what Meatloaf should have called himself. Yes. <laughs> but, oh, Mr. Wilde. Here's a man looking to leave a stain on someone's pillow in the morning, eh? <laughs> You've got to say this from him. He lives completely in the moment. He's all about tonight yes. in a very real yes. sense. He's, it's his favourite word. Um, so there's this single, Gotta Get You Home Tonight. 1985, uh, he got, um, so that was uh, a US number one. Got another US number one with Don't Say No Tonight. Yes. Um, album in 1989, I Choose You, brackets tonight, close brackets. Oh. And then 1992, uh, he released How About Tonight, no question mark. Fucking hell. No, and another hit with I Feel Like Chicken Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Has he got some terminal illness or something? I don't, I, yeah, I mean, he, you know, it's like... He doesn't fuck about, does he? And then, and then 2011, uh, he put out Get Comfortable, which is just flat out fucking gynecology, isn't it, really? <laughs> but this this song is this is an extremely basic version of that thing where uh, a guy tells you about the excellent time that he's going to show you because he's got a nice apartment yeah. and some good booze yeah. and some candles and a round bed with satin sheets that are a nice feminine shade of mm. peach and he's going to turn the lights yeah. down low and he's going to put on some smooth tunes exactly just like this very one that he's singing right now. Yes. And he's going to take his yeah. time and he's going to make you feel real good and he's going to be a real gentleman. Make, make you scream and shout all night. And he's, yeah, and he's going to do nice stuff to you with his hands and or tongue. Tonight! Ooh. That's that's yeah. what this is. Um, So that's the vibe. Yeah. I think that's what you'd be better off with. <laughs> but this is, it's, it's like, I I immediately, I, was, I don't, I don't remember this track at all. And it's like, this is only, mm. this is only a few months after, um, after Marvin Gaye died. And, uh, yes. And it is, it is sexual shaking, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It's insanely disrespectful. He's hardly been in his grave 10 minutes and it's like this homeopathic mm. sexual healing, basically. Uh, I'd see, I like and dislike this record. I, yeah, that's I, how I, I feel. Yeah, I like it because... It, this is the moment just before these kind of erection section uh, steamy soul records went from being beautifully single-minded yes. um, to being weirdly prudish and anti-sex yes. in a sort of diseased way, you know, or maybe out of fear of disease. But mm. those cold times, like 1985 was really the beginning of all of that. And in 84, you've still got a, le- a lot of records in the charts with quite raunchy lyrics. Yes. Um, or at least songs that accept sex as a central fact of life. Well, we had Alison Moyer going on about wanting a warm yeah. injection. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, Love Resurrection by mm. Alison Moyer. Um, I'm So Excited by the Pointer Sisters, which is yeah. a really dirty song. Relax, of course. Yeah. Um, Jeff Sex. <laughs> but <laughs> Shove it up by Jeff Sex. <laughs> right, exactly. People were still horny and not pretending, right? Mm. So Eugene really has to get you home tonight. It, yeah. We're 12 months down the line. Tonight. It had been stating very clearly that he wasn't going to try and get you home tonight, as if he expected a round of applause. Yeah. You know. I've got to get you back to your dad's by 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> yeah, or just, you know, like to show how how nice, like he expects the Daily Mirror to present him with an award, you know. Like, yes. Whereas here, he's still going on about, yeah, he's going to make you scream and shout all night, mm. which is a bit ambiguous, but, you know. Yeah, you know. that could but mean anything. But what I don't like about it is for a record that is purely about trying to get someone into bed, it's not very exciting or challenging 
or impressive or intriguing or mm. anything that you know it's soothing mm. and that's what always strikes me as a bit sinister about these records because you don't really want to be soothing people into bed no there's something a little bit yeah, yeah. it's a little bit uh, i don't know there's something dodgy about that and i don't like his it's a bit insane like he says oh a bottle of dom perignon oh to get us in god the don't mood. start me off he's so fucking transparent it's like he's talking to an idiot you know, yeah. which, you know, which he may well be, but it, at least start off by crediting this woman with a wit to see through something like that. You know what I mean? I hated that line. Yeah. I hated that line. It was like, uh, you know, this is a time when the nation's still coming to terms with wine boxes and Le Piador. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sounded trope in black music of the 80s and 90s, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. get enough expensive food and drink, Dana, and uh, where hey, misses. And then, yeah. and then you, and then you owe, and then you owe something. You know. mm. A bottle of Hirondelle. <laughs> it puts me on fucking edge. I don't feel soothed at all. I feel quite tense. Mm. I feel like, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, also, he says, I've got the tools. Yes. I know you're sure to lie. Yes. And the first time I watched this, he sang that. And at that exact moment, the upstairs neighbour started drilling. <laughs> it gave it a sort of a sinister edge that I don't think it was intended to have. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. weird that the, this particular strain of sex music, or making love music, as it would prefer to say, <laughs> yeah. Gary Davis sex music is yes. what it is, really. Um, but it it sounds nice and it sounds pleasant it to listen to. Like yeah. But yeah, but that's that's never been what sex sounds like to me, right? Yeah. Like these tones and moods. Um, in this style of music, are absolutely synonymous with sex, right? Um, I would never associate tones and moods like this with a sexual experience, which mm. maybe says something ab- uh, about me, I don't know. But it, <laughs> I've just never associated passion or desire with this sort of drifting, opiated, you know, almost drugged, passive atmosphere. Mm. Uh, yeah. Maybe you're doing it wrong. Soft focus. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't think so. There's a there's a very sort of restricted and like uninstinctive sort of hotel soft porn feel about it, which is Mm. very sort of uh, hemmed in and doesn't seem to have much to do with the real life experience of wanting or having sex. I mean, I suppose people are different, but I think you know, give me a Betty Davis record any day, you know, if just because the the ramped up nastiness of records like that. A lot of people would see as performative, but yeah. to me, in a way, it sounds completely natural and cathartic. Yeah. Whereas Eugene is always posing and always aspiring, even when he's naked, right? And it, mm. I've just always suspected that the softer and more respectable somebody's sexuality is, the more rot and contamination lies under the surface mm-hmm. do you know what i mean whereas yeah. the dirtier and more perverted people get the cleaner those people's souls are because yeah. they've got all the poison out mm. fucking hell <laughs> I, I don't know about that i mean the dom perinom really offended me at the time because a it implied that women could be bought with expensive right. alcohol and b i couldn't afford dom perignon yeah. On my uh, on, on whatever money I had at the time, I think I was yeah I was working at the co-op chucking um, blocks of lard into a big skip, and they didn't have any <laughs> Dom Perignon to nick. So I thought, oh well, that, that's me not fucked then. 
you know, but then I actually lost my virginity by saying, I've got some, uh, I've got some cans of uh, cheap lager upstairs. Uh, shall we go up there? So, yeah, Eugene, you, you, it's what you do, mate. <laughs> it's always more gratifying uh, because that would suggest that person actually did want to go to bed with you. Because yeah. they're not going to be saying, no way am I going to bed with this bloke. Oh, I've got some cans of lager upstairs. Oh, yeah. go on then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the great line that comes after that is, a bottle of Dom Perignon to get us in the mood and an atmosphere that's sure to mm. please you. Which sounds like one of those cinema adverts for curry houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it's kind of sleazy and yet somehow weirdly uh, sexless, I suppose. Mm. Because it's like instead of kind of trying to recreate porn, if you go to bed with Eugene Wilde, he's going to try to recreate an, a 1980s pop video. Mm. There's going to be uh, lovely soft lighting and there's going to be sort of diaphanous curtains kind of gently flapping and you, you, the woman, are going to yeah. look awesome and you're going to be sort of, you're going to shyly dip your head, but actually you're, you're totally up for it. And he's going to lay you down on his pink satin sheets and, mm. you know, kind of run an ice cube down your body. And then that'll be it because, you know, it's like, yeah, this has been great. Cool. That, that's going to look, that's going to look amazing. It's like, what, yeah. really? Are, are you, are you done? Are, what, mm. is it, what just happened? Like, yeah, we'll send you the check. Oh, shit. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it is all, it's a kind of performative thing where it's like, you wouldn't want to have sex with him, really, would no. you? Because it's like that, if this is his idea of sex, you you wouldn't get much out of it. Yeah. And your job would be as the woman to just look pretty, I suppose. And, mm. and his job is to be a gentleman and treat you really good, and uh, but not to any particular end, and nobody's going to sweat very much, mm. I suppose. Yeah, it's it's obviously right. because he's so conventional in all of his ideas of what constitutes sex and seduction. Yeah, it's not very convincing mm. because he didn't, you know, none of this is really coming from him. It's coming from what he's seen on Channel Five. You know what I mean? As a, or the Red Shoe Diaries with yeah. David Duchovny. <laughs> Like the, and also, no, not in 1984. No, that's true. It's kind of like David Hunter's bedroom technique, isn't it? I can imagine him <laughs> doing this kind of shit. Yeah, but he, the thing is, he doesn't even know what he's doing because he says, kick off your shoes at one point. Like, mm. he's got her back to his flat. Kick off your shoes. I, well, I'm surprised he actually let her into the apartment with shoes on. I thought she'd have to take them off outside because of the carpet. Well, the thing is, if she's wearing trainers mm. or Doc Martens, then sure, kick them off. Great. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I fancy that Eugene's lady is wearing the kind of shoes you're meant to leave on. So uh, he has absolutely no idea what he's doing. No. No, no, no. It's okay. Stilettos, right? Which are, I, I'm assuming is what you're talking about. No, you kick those off, but you keep your feet flexed and like pointed. Oh, so it dangles off. Looks, you know, you don't just let, you can't just let, you can't just let your feet be feet, you know, because <laughs> yeah. that's no good. You've got to like have pointy, pointy feminine feet. Kick off your shoes so I can drink some of this Dom Perignon out of it because I saw James Bond or some fucker do that once. Yeah, there yeah. it is. Um, can I just point out something about it? Back to the performance mm. here, which um, which I don't think is, is, a, is a world beater either. Um, he's got a hanky. He's waving a hanky about, which shows you, which which uh, communicates to the audience that he's a he's an old school soul legend in yes. the making. A belter, yeah. And also voluminous trousers, yes. which I was quite astonished by. Yes. The massive trousers. I know I always have to comment on the trousers, but apparently that was just my thing. But you like leggy Mountbatten, Sarah. All this said, though, I don't mind this record. No, but I don't. it's one of those records that would sound better on the radio in the back of a cab. 
Yeah. At late at night. But when you're going home to sleep, not when you're going home to fuck. Yes. But why would you? Why do you need this record in a in a universe where sexual healing exists? No, well, exactly. True. Yeah. That's true. You know. But if you start Sorry. down that road, you have to write off about forty percent of pop history. Mm. I know. I know, and uh, you know it is a terrible thing to say, but I have said it, and there's no going back. So the following week, gotta get you home tonight. Rose four places to number eighteen, its highest position. The follow-up, Rainbow, failed to chart over here. Oh, imagine if he'd done a smooth R&B cover of the Rainbow <laughs> theme tune, man. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as the charts were concerned, it was a big goodbye to Eugene <laughs> Wilde. But he'd have one more top 40 hit when he reunited with Simplicious and got personality to number 34 for two oh, weeks yeah. in February of 1985. Yeah. Don't That's know the that first one. Time I th- yeah, yeah, I remember that record. It's yeah. the first time I've thought of it since uh, 1985. He spent the rest of 1985 appearing in the worst hip-hop film ever made, Rapping, and scored another US R&B number one with (laughs) Don't Say No Tonight, but that only got to number 80 over here, and he was done with the UK charts. He spent the 90s as a songwriter, co-writing LP tracks for the likes of Britney Spears, The Backstreet Boys, and Victoria Beckham. Eugene Wilder, he's got six more brothers at home just like him. Let's have a look at the countdown of the top ten of the chart that, that does count. count. Oh, yes. This week's number ten is Never Ending Story by Lamar. Up three to number nine, Caribbean Queen, Billy Ocean. At number eight, All Cried Out, Alison Moyer. Number seven, The Wanderer, Status Quo. Julian Lennon's at number six with Too Late for Goodbyes. And at number five, together in Electric Dreams, Giorgio Moroder and Phil Oakey. Number four, No More Lonely Nights by Paul McCartney. Up two to three, The Wild Boys, Duran Duran. Wham! are at number two with Freedom. And we have got a brand new number one this week. And the brand new number one is Chaka Khan, and it's I Feel For You. Here's the lady. Bates and Skinner now wearing those crappy tinsel lays as if they were trophies from those girls earlier. Break down the top ten and introduce this week's number one, A Feel For You by Chaka Khan. Born in Chicago in 1953, Yvette Stevens formed a group with her sister called the Crystalettes at the age of 11 before becoming a member of the Black Panthers at the age of 14. After dropping out of the Panthers and high school in 1969, she joined the band Life with a Y turning down the opportunity to replace the deceased Baby Hewer as lead singer of the Babysitters. In 1972, after stints with various local groups, she was poached by the band Rufus, who were then spotted by Ike Turner, who invited them to record at his studio in Inglewood so he could try to nick Shaka for the Ikeettes, which she knocked back. 
Rufus signed with ABC Records in 1973 and their career took off when Stevie Wonder wrote Tell Me Something Good for Khan, which got to number three in the US charts. However, the UK waited until the end of the 70s and the beginning of her solo career before admitting her into its hearts and charts when I'm Every Woman got to number 11 in January of 1979. She spent the early 80s alternating between Rufus and her solo career, a situation which culminated earlier this year when Ain't Nobody got to number 8 in April. This is the follow-up, of sorts, to One Million Kisses with Rufus, which got to number 86 in June. It's the lead-off and title track from a new solo LP which came out last month and is a cover of a track from Prince's eponymous second LP in 1979, which was originally written for Patrice Russian, who knocked it back. It's already been covered by the Pointer Sisters on their 1982 LP So Excited, but this version has been supplemented by Stevie Wonder on harmonica, Steve Ferrone of the Average White Band on drums, and Grandmaster Melly Mel doing a bit of some rap. It was the highest new entry at number two three weeks ago, soared 17 places a fortnight later, nipped up to number two last week and made it to the summit of Mount Pop this week, ending the three-week reign of freedom by Wham. And here's the video featuring Shabadoo, Boogaloo Shrimp and the other two people in the film breaking who didn't have stupid names and they've therefore been rightly forgotten. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell, a good number one. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Holy shit. This is almost as if someone's gone, what's fucking mint and skill about black music in 1984? Let's mash it all together. Yeah, I mean, to me, it is like a compressed pill of all mm. of the best things about 1984. Yes. You know, it, it's so, oh, it's so good. I mean, the thrill of hearing this kick in, like every single time, yes. it never fades. It's such a perfect record. And I will... I will dance to it under any circumstances the whole way through. Mm. It's like every element is in perfect balance. And they kind of threw, you know, it's quite a risky thing and they completely pulled it off. They just yes. threw so much in. But it's it's amazing. It's such a gorgeous, exciting, spiky, luxurious piece of electro-funk. Yes. I, I could listen to this till the end of time. I'd have it played at my funeral. In fact, I want it played at my funeral. Play this at my funeral like, you know, everyone could have a little cry first and then put this on. And we, we could go, Sarah B, let me burn you, let me burn you, Sarah B. <laughs> it's all I want to do. <laughs> but I mean, I wouldn't... Would you trust anyone who didn't sort of have a little squirm around in their seat when this came on? No. Or like tip no. their head back and make involuntary funk face? Yes. Or like have a massive grin? You just wouldn't. I mean, anyone who's not moved by this record is uh, is not my friend. No. How many years has it been now? Right, thirty-five years. God, yeah. And still, you hear that Shaka Khan, yeah. Shaka Khan. It's like uh, Melly Mel starting up on a cold morning, and yes. it just cuts <laughs> right through all the decades, and mm. everyone who remembers it responds to it, right? Yeah. And it's always there every time uh, Chukka Amuna is in the news, or <laughs> uh, or Granite Shaka gets sent off, or it's immediately it's there in your head. It's so fixed as a signifier of the eight or the happy eighties. Yes, the good eighties. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm surprised a fucking building society hasn't started using it in an advert. You know what I mean? Although terrifyingly, they've uh, a lot of those have moved on to nineties nostalgia now mm. in their adverts as that next generation start to. 
accumulate yeah. enough dishonorably sourced money to put roofs over their heads. But, but which means that this will turn up soon in one of those daytime adverts for funeral plans. Yes. Which is the next oh, step. Oh, no. And Sarah will get a wish because... No, it's... I take it all back. No, I take it back. <laughs> I tell you what, have you seen that one with Alan Titchmarsh, by yes. the way? Yes. That's on at the moment. He's in a potting shed and he turns around to the camera and says, you know, one day I'll be pushing up daisies rather than planting them. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. That's so dark. You know, it's a funny thing. One day, instead of turning up worms with my little trowel, they'll be burrowing through my sightless, decomposing eyeballs. <laughs> there's a sort of forced giggle in his voice as he says yeah. it as well. It's so broken and mm. hollow. And that's what it means <sighs> to be an icon of an yeah. obsolete generation. So, yeah, maybe one day, once the olden's favourite, Titchmarsh, is, uh, is true to his word... Uh, will be the next in line. And it's like like then they're now using Kim Wilde and Jason Donovan to sell us chocolate while yeah. we've still got teeth and fucking <laughs> bagpuss to sell us de-icer or, you know. You could do a really good compilation of, like, inappropriate songs in adverts, this, like, taken out of context, because mm. um, Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode is now in a car advert, and the is power it? of advertising is such that I can't remember what car it is. But it's like... It's just because it sounds, uh, you know, it's bouncy and sort of chunky and stuff. So they just put that in there because they want, that's how they think their car sounds. But it's like, if you actually listen to this, mm. do you know what I mean? There is, I think everything eventually, you are right, everything is going to be shorn of its context. Everything's going to have its like perfect day moment. It's mm. like, I don't know, just so many, you could probably make a compilation of songs about heroin or butt sex that have mm. been used to, you know, sell insurance, couldn't you? Yeah. Oh, Walk on the Wild Side. Fucking hell, that's it. That's also in a car advert. Like the original Walk on the Wild Side. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> what are you Fucking do- ridiculous. What do you think you're doing? But yeah, I tell you, like, I have often wondered who's going to be that representative for our generation when it's when it comes to funeral plans. Because um, Scylla did it, didn't she? Uh, did she? Oh, God. It's been bothering me. Who is it going to be who's going to turn around and say, you know... It's- uh, living in a box. That would be quite appropriate. Yeah, they'd be perfect, <laughs> wouldn't they? Fucking I up. think it's going to be someone like Boy George oh. who's going to turn around and uh, and talk about funeral plans to our generation. But then, hopefully I want to stick around and see what knobhead from the 90s they, they drag out. And someone out of Shed 7 or whatever. You thought I was dead. Well, I'm not, but I will be soon. <laughs> but talking of adverts, I mean, this is the time when uh, when breakdancing and electro just, just took over. But I've got an inkling that this is the exact moment when the Weetabix started wearing tracksuits and, and spinning on their rusks. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, and, they, and the right guard advert with a businessman staying cute in his suit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That's when people started putting down the ripped-up cardboard boxes in the local shopping mm. precinct. And, yes, you know, really, doing a swan dive. Yeah, really not well either yeah yeah obviously this is one of those songs that you can't hear without seeing the video yeah because the video was a a pretty big deal at the time yeah well there's 80s video alert number three which is diagonal mesh metal fence uh signifier of new york and just urban generally uh augmented here by hip-hop graffiti uh just in Mm. case anyone missed the repositioning of shaka khan from old school funk to urban contemporary as it used to be mm. but those fences are a, 
a great instant symbol. You see one of those and you know that you're either going to get kids banging a basketball against it or a contemporary dance routine happening behind it. Or Tracy Owen when trying to get away from Bomber Dog. <laughs> yeah, also, uh, as an adjunct to that, uh, immaculate manicured hand, lady hand, clutching in between the chain links. Mm. And, you know, kind of, yeah, which which she uh, which she really sells here. Yes. Um, with the kind of purple everything in the very in the princely fashion. Yes. Um big purple coat, massive beret, um and and kitten heels. And she does this kind of so she's sort of clutching onto the 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 fence and then does the coquettish look over the shoulder. And she has this whole video Shaka Khan just looks extremely pleased with herself and rightly so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she just she just looks she sort of you know, it's a really it, it's it's a really happy video actually. There's because yeah. all the dancers are kind of doing their thing, like grinning at the camera. Yeah, and it's not it's not too slick. It's yeah. not there's not a load of cuts in it. It just kind of it almost looks like a rehearsal or just they're like hanging out in the street and messing about. Yeah, it's really nice and, and natural. And of course, for those in the know, uh, they'd be going berserk at the sight of uh, Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp. Yeah, you know, particularly the latter after he did that dance with the uh, with the broomstick. <laughs> Did you ever see those films at the time? You weren't Sarah Taylor? Were no, you I didn't. No, Did you ever go to that? It wasn't my thing. Must admit that I didn't go to it either, but it was talked about endlessly in the playground. Oh, yeah, I remember oh, I that. Bad guy! <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, how you change and adapt as you get older? Because I remember when this mm. came out, seeing this video, and Shaka Khan looked to me like somebody's mum, you know. Yes. Like, perhaps Sadiq. Um Whereas she's like thirty, yeah, right, right, exactly. I'm watching this now, <laughs> and my forty-something self immediately thought, "Hello, I like your hat." <laughs> uh, but yeah, of course, she's she's thirty, thirty-one here, even younger than Francis Rossi. So I'd probably look yes. like somebody's dad to her if our timelines ever crossed. Uh, oh, cruel wheel of Kronos. <laughs> so anyway, I guess you know that the intro, the repetition of her name, the myth is it's one of the great pop errors that got left in. Mm. You know, which I, I love a great pop error, though, don't you? Yes. Like, oh, yeah, I slipped. So the producer said, uh, Arif, Arif Mardin says that his hand slipped on the repeat machine and went, oh, that sounds really cool. And it's, mm. you know, and also apparently because he said, this is a slightly, a slightly bum note about this, is that they were like, we were a bit worried about putting the rap in there. We worried it would sound too aggressive. Yeah. And that kind of took took the edge off it. That sort of stuttering took the edge off it, which, mm. uh, you know, so it was like, yeah, we can leave it in. Hopefully nobody will flee in terror at the sound of a black man speaking. <laughs> and also uh, Stevie Wonder um, yes. who recorded the harmonica apparently on the day of Marvin Gaye's funeral. Good Funerals God. again, you see, it's all Jesus about the Christ. It's, it's, before it's, or after? I know, before or after. I'm intrigued. I have no idea. But I'm sure Marvin would have approved. But yeah, yeah. that's a hell of a thing. Uh, Did he go and produce That's such a joyous, one of the most joyous noises in pop. It's just like a... It is, isn't it? A cloud of butterflies over this track. Yeah. And, you know, and it was, yeah, on the day of... Uh, on a very sad day. Imagine walking away from Marvin Gaye's funeral and, I don't know, Smokey Robinson comes up to him and goes, oh, come on, Stevie, let's let's have a cob and a drink or something. That'll cheer us <laughs> up. And he says, no, mate, I've got to go. Got to go off and add this few seconds of genius to this fucking mint and skill song. Yeah. I mean, there's no way <laughs> this record could have been completely shit, is there? When you look at the team no. they assembled. No. I mean, the worst that could have happened would be everyone getting in everyone else's way. 
and the whole thing becoming a bit of a mess. But what's remarkable is the extent to which that doesn't happen and all the talents dance around each other quite neatly. Uh, yeah. And that's really remarkable, I think. And that's the secret of how this became such a big hit. It's, you know, if you're not into what you're hearing, if you wait 10 seconds, something else will happen, which you'll probably mm. like. But it's coherent and it doesn't sound like it's been designed by committee. And when you yeah. cram that many different perspectives into one single and they all fit together and it doesn't sound like a mess, just that alone is always going to be enough to give it a sort of immediate appeal, you know, just on the yeah. level of, in a literal and non-pejorative sense, novelty. You Like, it, it mm. sounds novel, you know, but it's also yeah, yeah. really good. And it's cleverly constructed in terms of appealing to the radio and so on. So it's a really obvious and natural number one. And yeah. although records which have been put together like this are not not usually the very best records. If they're done properly, they will deliver a, a solid 7 or 8 out of 10. So, mm. it's you know, it's not Ain't Nobody, which somehow manages to sound like something that just happened and has a natural mm. sort of glow and joy to it that you would oh, never get. That's a fucking genius yeah, song, that but you You yeah. can't get that feeling in a record as densely packed and pre-prepared as this one. But... This is still everything it's trying to be, and it, it yeah. really is great. Isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's it's also it, it does that magic thing that a, that a great record does, where it's completely and distinctly and obviously of its time, and yet somehow doesn't age. Yeah, like it can't. Yeah. it can't. It can't date. You know, it just doesn't. And yeah. yeah, it is like a perfect sort of musical ecosystem, and every element is just in in absolute perfect balance. And the break dancing was nice. I like a bit of break dancing. Also, she gets up on the decks at one point in this video yes. and, and does a little bit of scratching and her yes. face is such a picture. She's like, ooh, yeah. ooh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like watching she... your mum playing on the Mega Drive or something. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, any bit of breakdancing was was massively welcome. You know, even if it was on That's Life. Um, <laughs> but looking back at it now, you, you can see that, you know, there's a very thin line between group body popping and the Brian Rogers connection. Yeah. There is something of a, a boys' town air about some mm. of these lads, isn't there? Like yeah. that fellow in the Czech shirt. He looks like he's yes. got a CGI face. He's really, <laughs> really mugging. And he's perhaps a little too arch, even for a yeah. for a party record like this one. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Partly because it looks a bit cold and empty in that studio. And so... Anyone who's trying to make their own fun sort of stands out a bit. Yeah, but is like, did it always look like that, or is it just, is it just from here that you think like, yeah, it's quite camp though, isn't it? Mm. There was always that element uh, to to well body popping anyway. I mean, this is an amazing instructional video from around this time. Um, there's a clip circulating on YouTube, which will be available on the video playlist, obviously, of uh, some lad saying, you know, as well as the body rock, you've got to use your face as well. And he just goes oh. into all these fucking mentalist expressions. And it's, it's, oh, it's, it's quite remarkable. Oh, wow. If you want to stand out in the shopping precinct on a Saturday afternoon, man, this is, this is the lengths you're going to have to go to. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, you know, if, if someone turned around to me and said, oh, what was 1984 like? If I was massively dishonest, 
and wanted them to feel that they've missed out on one of the greatest years in history, I'd go, oh, look at this video, mate. <laughs> That's what it was like. That's what we were like. Yes, yeah, this and Frankie, just wall to wall. Yes. And that's it, yeah. Yeah, the other thing that's been bothering me, and I know it's a horrible question to drop on you, but is this the first number one single to have a sample on it? Because yeah. it's got fingertips, hasn't it? As Stevie Wonder, mm. you know, the say yeah, yeah. bit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I can't think of an yeah. earlier one. Mm. No. Which which means no, nothing me because you know <laughs> I, I'm not not a Wikipedia brain, but it's yeah I can't think of one. Not not that got to number one. Anything mm. else to say about this? Um, I saw Prince do this at the O2. Oh yeah, which yeah, which was a, a high point among high points. He changed the lyrics from um, "I'm physically attracted to you" to "I'm spiritually oh. attracted to oh, you." Oh, Prince! Oh, come on! Doesn't even scan, but it was Prince, so you know he got yeah. away with it. I Made mean, it we've obviously heard the original, haven't we, off the of Prince's second album? Yeah, it's a yeah. nice enough song, but it ain't yeah. this. No, it's not the the definitive version. No, as I'm sure he would. I'm, I'm sure he agreed. So I feel for you. Spent three weeks at number one before being usurped by. I should have known better by Jim Diamond. <laughs> but you know, this is the point when the eighties start to curdle, isn't it? Uh, short men ruling the charts. Sexy short men. Oh, in the Melody Maker Letters page, <laughs> would have been very pleased by that. Yeah, the short kings, it is their time. The follow-up, This Is My Night, got to number 14 in February of 1985, and she'd have a number 16 hit with Eye to Eye in May of that year before diminishing returns set in. Although she'd have two top 10 hits in 1989 when I'm Every Woman and Ain't Nobody was re-released. Just one more thing. Yes. I just discovered, right, that um, Addicted to Love was meant to be a duet with Robert Palmer and Chaka Khan. No. What? Fucking hell. Can you imagine? Instant 200% improvement. (laughs) Yeah. Because if you'd have said to me, oh, which female singer was supposed to duet with uh, Robert Palmer on Addicted to Love? You go, uh, 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 Tina Turner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either would have done to be nice, but Chaka Khan on that. Yeah. Wow. And imagine the vi- what would the video have been like? This is there's an alternate universe where that yeah. happened yeah, and yeah. everything's better. White models with their hair scraped back doing breakdancing really badly. <laughs> or both. Yeah. You, yeah. you have that. You have that Robo Babe band performing behind Robert Palmer mm. and behind Chaka Khan. You have a band of uh, blokes in like tuxedos looking equally yeah. weird. Yes. Yeah. See, then uh, you, nobody would have been able to call it sexist. It mm. Put something for the ladies in there, like yeah, a page seven the fella. Yeah. <laughs> the page seven fella of, uh, of yeah. <laughs> If you look at that now, it, it is like um, it's like a comment on sexism. Really, it's mm. you know, it, it's not really. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think we should get to that at some point. Oh yes, I would have a lot to say. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Robert Palmer gave a fuck either way to be no. honest. He's, you know, he's a he was a weirder, much weirder bloke than you'd think from listening to his uh, adult-oriented albums. Well, he he um, I, I I guess we cannot prove this, but didn't he die shagging in Paris, which is a pretty good way to go out? Did he? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Next 
next week we have a bit of sanity here. Mike Reed and Bruno Brooks, and we leave you with CZ Knob. Give me a love. See you on top of the box. Bates and Skinner, besieged by the kids, warn us that Mike Reed and Bruno Brooks are up next week and sign off with Gimme All Your Lovin' by CZ Top. It's the way they say next week we have a bit of sanity here, Mike Mm. Reed and Bruno Brooks. You genuinely can't tell whether he's trying to suggest that him and Bates are so crazy (laughs) and this week's show has been such a parade of psychological disturbances <laughs> that it will be nice to have the sensible boys in next time or whether it's meant to imply that with Mike and Bruno in the area things are likely to get even wilder anything and more can happen yeah and because he because either of those is an equally strange and unrealistic suggestion mm. there's nothing to grab hold of so it doesn't really work but Bates just sort of chortles blankly in response and yeah. then says See you on top of the pops. Because he still can't stop doing that. He's still name-checking the programme all the time. Um, Even when it's over. Just in case you've just switched on and thought, oh, I like the look of this programme with its chart rundown and performances (laughs) by hit groups. But I don't know what it's called and I'll probably Mm. never be able to find it again. (laughs) So he's, he's there to help you out. Yeah. I could just see Simon Bates frantically looking at teletext. You know, typing in 150 on his remote to see if there's any news flashes or anything he, he can get in. <laughs> oh, and before we go, you know, the pound has dropped three cents. Yeah, before we go, if you're, uh, if you're heading north on the M15, <laughs> watch out for a, a bit of a... Bit of heavy congestion <laughs> near the 19th turn-off. I think they were just getting in, like, one more dig at anyone who's not them mm. before the end of it. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, these guys, you know, they look pretty slick, but they've just been on the toilet for a week. And, you know, this girl is <laughs> yeah. all right, I suppose. And this isn't bad, but really I could do better. I think he's just doing that. He's just kind of going, yeah, there's some other guys who aren't us and are not as good next time. Yeah. Just to be a mm. cunt. Yeah, Bants yeah. FM. They're just a bit of fun. That's all and they are. No, and none <laughs> the worse for that, except they are. Formed in Houston in 1969, ZZ Top spent the 70s as an America-only concern who were best known as a one-time support act on the Rolling Stones' 1972 tour. In 1979, however, they signed to Warner Brothers and made their first inroads into Europe a year later. In 1983, they released their eighth LP, Eliminator, and this was the lead-off single from it, but it only got to number 61 in September of that year. However, in the USA, the single and its video, with lots of model sorts getting in and out of the car that lead singer Billy Gibbons had constructed himself, blew up on MTV and got them into the US charts, prompting a re-release over here. This is the follow-up to Sharp Dressed Man, which got to number 53 in December of 1983 and was then put out again in July of this year, getting to number 11. Instead of the video, though, we're being treated to a super long segment of the last remnants of the zoo wankers being thoroughly upstaged by the kids. Did you know that Hitler was a vegetarian? (laughs) 
did you know that NASA went to the moon with less computer power than is now in a mobile phone? Did you know that actually Frankenstein is the name of the scientist and not the monster? Yes, you did. Of course you did, because these facts are examples of what me and my friends used to call Frank Beards. Uh, named, obviously, <laughs> after the 80s and to some extent 90s phenomenon of people, especially DJs, announcing with a slight air of smugness, like, I'm about to tell you something that will blow your tiny mind, <laughs> that the drummer out of ZZ Top, the only one without an enormous beard, is actually called Frank Beard. And this fact was repeated so often in the 80s, always yeah. with that assumption that to you this would be a, a freshly de-shelled pearl, <laughs> like a nugget of mm. new information to set you spinning. So I started using the term to refer to any tired old fact that everyone already knows, dragged up and presented as a, as a knock-em-down showstopper. Uh, and it still works, at least for people of a certain age, you know. <laughs> Did you know yeah. Sherlock Holmes never actually said elementary, my dear Watson? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. Oh, the other one of those, by the way, was the, the big bird, which you can use as a noun or a verb. It could be a big bird or you can big bird a song. It's when a song is slightly sport for you by a line which unwittingly sets up entirely the wrong associations. And it's named yeah. after the... Unfortunate moment in Helpless by Neil Young or by uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, where he set up this scene of pastoral bliss, sort of remembered in stoned, melancholic, soft focus. And he says, uh, There is a town in North Ontario. And his uh, blue, blue windows behind the stars. Yellow moon on the rise. And then the next line is, Big birds flying across the sky. <laughs> At which point you can only picture the massive yellow thing from Sesame Street just flapping yeah. across your line of vision, <laughs> waving a, a feathery wing at you and, and opening his, his giant plastic beak really wide in an expression of mm. wacky astonishment, <laughs> which sort of ruins the mood a bit and when you grasp that conceptually you start to notice an awful lot of big birds in quite a lot of your favorite songs um very very personal Eddie Floyd. yeah well that's just as bad isn't it yeah mm. there's also there's a song by uh larry murray called bugler which the birds did a version of on one of their later albums right. and i always really liked it except there's a bit in it that goes uh we thought we were birds of a feather. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, and um, uh, Beasts of No Nation by Fella Cootie. Towards the end of that, yeah. it sounds like he starts going, uh, oh, Chris Waddle, you're going to kill them <laughs> students. I thought, what, what's got into magic, Chris? He'll <laughs> pay a harsh penalty for that. Um <laughs> But yeah, I'm sure all the pop crazed youngsters have many examples of their own, and now they now they oh, yes. have a, a ready made term for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, the worst Frank Beard in the world. Before I forget, is the Please one do. that doesn't quite work. You know how people say John Lennon said that 
is Ringo yeah. Starr the best drummer in the world? He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. People say that mm. the same way that yeah. they would say a Frank Beard. Like, oh, I bet you've never heard this yeah. quote when everybody has. Yeah. But the fact yeah. that it's not true and he never actually said mm. that and it actually it was Jasper Carrot is so well known that it's almost <laughs> more of a Frank Beard to point that out than it is to say it in the first place. Well, I guess you have Frank Beards of different lengths and consistencies, and you know you have the kind of, uh, you know, the, the ones that don't don't stray from the chin, and then the ones that just grow wildly <laughs> out of control and force you to hide your eyes mm. in the street lest you do a violence. Yeah. But this band, I mean, thank God we got to see the video of Status Quo, not them in the studio, because, you know, I think ZZ Top would have got right on their tits because it's like, oh, well, there's no need for you now. Yeah. This was kind of another reason that I, that I chose this episode, because I thought it's it's a good, possibly erroneously, um, it's a good opportunity to kind of compare and contrast your British and American standard chuggalug kind of pub butt rock, you know. Mm. I don't know if it's a you know comparing apples and assholes, but the biscuits and gravy version instead of meat and potatoes, you know. Yes. And if we are comparing them, then I much much prefer this to Status Quo. Yeah. I yeah. know it's 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 not it's not much of a of a bar to to vault, but yeah, it's kind of like they they're kind of there's always been something a bit mucky about Status Quo for me, but not in a way that not in a way that I like. In a kind yeah. of it's just a bit of fun kind of way that That's all that it is. that makes me tense. This is mucky in the sort of over-American way, which is a, a very different flavour of, of muck. Yeah. It's quite over. It's quite. It's quite over. And Red obvious. clay. <laughs> There's no like winking or, or like elbow nudging. It's like, oh, look at those legs. Wouldn't you like to play them like a guitar? But in American, it's kind of <laughs> they can get away with it. But it, it's sort of there's something base yeah. in all the ways. But it's not completely. It's still sort of chaste. It's like mm. it's not it's not completely gross. It's actually quite sweet. It's like give me all your loving, all your hugs and kisses too. See, they just want a nice mm. cuddle. Well, this this is mucky yeah. like with engine oil rather than chip fat, which is what the <laughs> yeah. are, you know. And it's and also just sonically, this sounds you know it's like this is the Grand Canyon and the Quo are like a a, a, a pothole in Sydenham. You know what I mean? It's the <laughs> so a quarry, a disused quarry. A quarry, I, I think you mean. A quarry. Oh come on! Now let's stop doing this. I think we've reached our quota for this episode. <laughs> oh. I mean, I think you could say that the obsessive weirdo monomania of earlier quo records, in a way, is a bit more interesting compared to this sort of greasy blowout which ZZ Top mm. were. But by this point in time. No, it's like ZZ Top are like that huge, tasteless car that they always add in their videos. Uh, mm. And Quo, it's like an Austin princess, you know what I mean? There's literally yeah. nothing that you would take <laughs> from them over this. And this isn't one of their better tracks. Yeah. I mean, they spent years no. playing quite a sort of witty and precise form of shit-kicker blues boogie. Uh, whereas this is a bit bleary and a bit sort of, you know, beer-bellied. But it's still got a really basic, horrible crunch and movement to it, which is way yeah. beyond status quo, you know, trundling along on their lorry in the drizzle, you know. <laughs> there's there's a, that, that, that sun-scorched, blasted feel to this that is uh, 
a lot more impressive. It's got a bit of life to it, hasn't it? It's got a bit of bollocks to it, you know. I mean, you mm. could. It's. I. I. I was kind of like, this is quite weird. This is a weird top of the pops moment where it's like, um, you know, ZZ Top, which is so. It, it's got. It's so kind of sleazy and all the kind of um, all the all the nice teenagers in the in the top of the pop audience are expected to dance to this. But it's. I mean, because because I would automatically think this is something that you would pole dance to, but you'd need yeah. you'd need to have like a studded denim thong and a massive blonde perm and dead eyes and three kids (laughs) by five different men you know that's that's what this is but actually i've got to say like i found this strangely moving as a kind of Mm. end of an episode um so it's like it's this grubby fucking stupid ass song and everyone in the studio is having a nice wholesome sway a nice sort of just a little jig about to it and yeah, yeah it's but the zoo wankers are in two camps with this song because um, they're, they're either um, really failing to put themselves across to this kind of music because it's, it's 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 nothing for them to dance to, or they're trying to be a bit sexy. Yeah. I mean, there's one zoo wanker in particular who's a, a, a bit ZZ top heavy and uh, with no bra on, and she's trying to give it loads. Did you but... just say ZZ top heavy? Yes, I did. Yes. Jesus. <laughs> And she and she's trying to shake it all about and that, but you, your eyes go off her very instantly to, towards the kids who were just just having a jolly time. And there's that uh, that woman in a top that sort of draws attention to itself by having a neat hole cut out to show her belly button. <laughs> the woman with the dress with the hotel, you know, who she reminded me of no Orco in Masters of the Universe. <laughs> oh. Although I'd be more impressed if there was an umbilical cord coming out through the hole, still connected to her mother. That is, that that's how you yes. accessorise. Fucking hell! <laughs> Fucking hell! This has taken a turn in the last thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, because it, it goes around. You know, there's there's kind of you get a longer look than you usually do at, at everyone. There's a girl in a kind of black and white striped jersey dress who's like giving it a good go and looks so happy. And there's a couple of girls sort of pouting, but but and trying to look cool. Uh, the girl in blue is back, and now she's got a fucking blue veil, <laughs> and she's really like working yes. the camera. And I I love her, but the camera lingers on her a bit too long, and it's yeah. like no, I don't know, stop it. She can't hold the smoke. Yeah. But that, just leave her alone. Long, you, do you know what I mean? It's like look, go and it's it's rude to point a camera at someone in an audience for that long. It's like yeah. many seconds, and it's like no, 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 move, move on, move on. This is getting weird now. Yeah. But yeah, and then there's a girl who looks about thirteen, isn't there, in like a turquoise jumpsuit, yes. who's sort of jigging about with a flag, and just also looks really happy. And a girl who looks like a young Deirdre Barlow with the glasses. Mm. And you know, it's so it's so 1984 that that it hurts. And I I had a moment of excitement where I thought there was a trampoline. Yeah, there's two of them, oh. and I was like, no, it just looks like one. It's a round black bit of stage with like white things around the edges and at first i was like is that a trampoline imagine that i know that would have been health and safety apocalypse but no one gave a shit about these things in the 80s why didn't they have a top of the pops trampoline yeah they'd only have let zoo wankers on it though yeah because they're the only ones Mm. who signed the uh signed the forms trampoline or not everyone's and and you know uh slightly possibly pervy cameraman um they're Mm. all smiling and cheering they all look so happy to be there and i was just kind of struck by that in a way that I haven't yeah. been with other episodes. I mean, it's like, this is 1984, and they probably know that they might die tomorrow pissing into their shoes outside mm. British home stores in Sheffield, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> but tonight, tonight we're dancing, 
and that's yes. what it's about. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. I had a little, you know. Do you ever get those yeah, with this? I was like, oh. Although it can't really be said that these kids will be looking good when the bomb drops. Well, the girl in blue will. That's true. But, but yeah. she, she'll be smouldering even more. <laughs> well, that, ve- that veil will go up a tree and she probably wouldn't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah. up a tree on her bike. But generally, <laughs> there's a lot of hairstyles and items of clothing here, which I remember sniffing at in Mr. Byright in the mid-80s, you know, mm. which have now resurfaced like a corpse in the Thames, you know, washed up on the yeah. on the pebbly bank of the 21st century. And <laughs> if history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce, fashion repeats itself the other way round because we can have yes. a nice chuckle at these kids trying to make the best of a, an encroaching cultural winter and perhaps a nuclear yeah. winter. Uh but you see the same shit back now with an added twist of of self-congratulation, you know, for being mm. such an utter dickhead. Uh, that says something really unfortunate and upsetting and, and tragic about the present day. Uh, because what I don't understand about 80s clothes and hair, and didn't even then, is why you would want to turn yourself into a smear. Because clothes are meant to flatter your physical attributes <clears throat> and disguise mm. your physical failings. I mean, that's practically a yeah. definition of, of saying that suits you. You know, that's what it means. Uh, and the mm. shapelessness or the unnatural shapes of 80s clothes don't do that at all. They cover up your strong points. And if you're short or fat or skinny, they make you look shorter or fatter or skinny. Mm. And it's the same with that hair that's just fleece or uh, or like a thrush's <laughs> nest, you know, and it's got no relation to the shape of your face. So if you've got a nothingy British face with no distinguishing features, it I mean, you look like a cardboard box that's been left out in the rain. It, there's a sort of loosening hmm. of focus with 1980s style, which is what makes it disagreeable, I think, and why I never liked it. Hmm. There's a bloke, in fact, I think he's one of the blokes on that little uh, non-trampoline. Uh, he's got a black and white cheesecloth shirt and camouflage trousers, hmm. right? Now, aside from that being a complete mess, it's precisely the kind of mess that merges into a colourless hole. Because you look at it and you just kind of see a a, a grey blob, you know, from a distance. It's it's not nice. The best thing about it is when that blue air girl comes back on and she's trying to still give it the sultry stare. And then eventually, like she's in an Andy Warhol film, the unblinking stare of the camera finally breaks her down and she can't take herself <laughs> seriously anymore she just starts laughing in a sort of games up yeah. kind of way and uh yeah yeah then we close with someone playing peggy oller and shaw in a touring rep production of Heidi <laughs> and uh, and you know the usual bunch of office plankton doing a knees up <laughs> yes which always seems to be there i don't know why and that Spanish girl isn't next to her, so we've, uh, you know, we can discount them as friends. Not necessarily. She might have, you know, mm. uh, gone off to um, create mischief in another part of the studio yeah. and report back. You know, they might have. Yeah. They might have just fallen out over over <laughs> yeah. who got Simon Bates's phone number. Yes. <laughs> the thing that I take away from this is just just the sheer happiness because you don't. That's not a given with the top of the pops audience. Mm. We we have seen them look look bored and tired and sort of forced and stuff. And I think this is a really happy crowd. 
I mean, I'm, I'm not actually into nostalgia as a thing. I, I know mm. I always return to the, I'm always going to return to the 80s on this on this podcast. And, you know, and I do have sort of very warm feelings for the period, just instinctively warm feelings about it. It's not, not in that kind of mindless, sentimental way. And, you know, it's like, obviously life has always been tough and we've always lived a millimetre from the abyss. Mm. And it's not like I even wish that I could have been 17 in 1984. Although... That might have suited me better in many ways. But, you know, sometimes you get a glimpse of a moment like this and you kind of connect with it across time and space and it's like somewhere they're still dancing and they're still young and everything's all right. And Yeah, that's exactly how I feel when we see an early 70s, late 60s one, Sarah. Yeah. That feeling that, oh, I've just missed out. Yeah, there's a bit and of And it's that, all bollocks, there? isn't it? It is all bollocks, but, you know, you, you have a little... It does make your brain turn over a little bit. Mm. Can I just point out that the costume designer for this episode was Odile Dix Moreau. Yeah. Ooh. Also costume designer on early 80s Doctor Who. And when you make that connection, uh, quite a lot of things fall into place. Ah. Oh, she, she could have done up Simon Bates like a Cyberman. <laughs> well, you know, it's like you don't really need to, do you? And that, me dears, is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One immediately pitches into Don't Wait Up, the middle-class sitcom featuring Tony Britton, Nigel Havers and George Layton. Then it's the second part of Zoo 2000, an eight-part programme about how people will be gawping at animals in this rubbish century on Facebook. Mm. After the nine o'clock news, it's part two of Morgan's Boy, the Gareth Thomas drama series about a Welsh farmer and his nephew from Manchester. Roy Hattersley and Paddy Ashdown have an argument in question times and they round off the night with Men and Intimacy, the Philip Hodson documentary series about how rubbish men are when it comes to discussing their feelings. Oh, the 80s. You were crap at that. We're so good at it, aren't we? BBC Two has just started the business documentary series Commercial Breaks, where two insurance underwriters oversee an attempt by a space shuttle to rescue satellites that have strayed off course. Then Food and Drink goes to California to visit a monk with the biggest collection of corkscrews in the world. (laughs) Jonathan King presents Entertainment USA from Charleston... And then it's a 40 minutes documentary, The Happy Medium, featuring Doris Stokes. Mm. The Karen Kay show features Bruce Forsyth, then it's Newsnight and more tennis. ITV is halfway through Knight Rider, where Michael's mate goes into a coma after taking part in a race. So Michael races against the sports car driver who did her over and bets Kit against him and massively surprisingly wins. Jim Cunt Cunt Davidson puts up two Irish friends who have their own coffin in Up the Elephant and Round the Castle. Then Peter Bowles and George Cole star in the Yorkshire TV sitcom The Bounder. TVI reports on something or other. Then it's News at 10, a repeat of the Sweeney, and they close out the day with Above New Zealand, a documentary about what New Zealand looks like from a helicopter. Channel 4 is running the historical documentary series Scotland's Story, looking at engineering and inventing and medical stuff. And then it's Holy Wedlock, where Fred Wedlock and his chums have a bit of a sing in a pub in Bristol. Then it's the 1982 Jonathan Price and Cherry Lungy murder film Praying Mantis, followed by the final episode of The Blood of the British, the documentary series about the Norman invasion, and they finish off with an episode of Soap, which as lot in ATV Land saw years ago. So, me dears, 
What are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I suppose I might have brought up Depeche Mode's naughty anti-God lyrics. Mm-hmm. Like at perhaps the last point in British culture history where that might have seemed eye-opening or yeah. a bit seditious. Mm-hmm. Although probably not, though, because we all used to whisper far worse in RE classes, to be honest. Yeah. Should have heard some of those blasphemous rumours. <laughs> uh, and I suspect that Gary Newman still vaguely supposed that his white and blue... Uh, frozen admiral look might <laughs> inspire some discussion but I don't think it would have done because the freaky had become conventional yeah. and old fashioned by 1984 yeah. if he wants to be a pop star he needs a baggy black suit with silver trinkets pinned to the lapel mm. over a, a sloppy white hundred quid blouse and a you know yeah get out of the past futurist <laughs> 1979 wants its 1984 back <laughs> Yeah, um, I think it would have to be Chaka Khan, Chaka Khan, mm. Chaka Khan, yeah. Chaka Khan, over and over and over until you experience <laughs> yeah. massive semantic satiation and you fall over and you graze your knee and you have to go and get a plaster. <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday? Yeah, probably only Chaka Khan. Although there are four or five other records here which are at least quite good, which mm. is a, mm. a decent score for 1984. Definitely, yeah. And what does this episode tell us about November of 1984? Um, you can do whatever you want and you should just have massive hair and a synthesizer and prance about like a tit because life is short and you might end up being nuked to death while you're buying pants at Marks and Sparks. Mm. There is a terrible wind blowing in, scattering, you know, scattering all the old weird ideas and new perspectives. And in 1983, things were still in disarray. Whenever we do one from 1983, it's always all over the place. But now it's settled a bit and there is a new reality and a new orthodoxy, which is people who aren't necessarily quite as young as they used to be, putting away childish things, you know, musically, and selling the results to children, which, I mean, this episode creates a bit of a misleading impression because all the team bands are on hiatus at the moment. But even there, you know, there was a, a parallel shift with those bands and we were being asked to admire their material achievements or respect their their splutterings about pride and dignity you know or their musicianship or their charity contributions and rather than being transported which is why a couple of years later that uh overtly foreign romanticism of aha would feel like a breath of freezing arctic air mm. uh but this is solid live aid this era in it and yeah there's more good records around than there would be a few years later, but there's not a whole lot of drama or surprise. But anyway, me dears, that is the end of this episode of Chart Music. All I've got to do now is shit out the usual promotional rubbish, so I'll do that right now www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast find us on twitter at chartmusictotp money down the g-string patreon.com slash chartmusic and uh, you know give us a review on itunes if you fancy it if you've got you know if you've got nothing else to do and you've got your phone in your hand say something nice about us yes please thank you very much sarah b Oh, no, no. Thank you. <laughs> very much, Taylor Fox. <laughs> See you later. My name's Al Needham, and if when I die I find God laughing at me, I'm starting on the cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music.
Full rundown of this week's top ten. Juan Martin and love theme from the Thornbirds at number ten. New Moon on Monday by Duran Duran standing at number nine. My ever-changing moods by Style Council. Eight. That's living all right. Our feeders ain't pet by Joe Fagan. Seven. And holiday by Madonna at this week's number six. Break my stride by Matthew Wilder. Five. Girls just wanna have fun by Cindy Lauper is four. Doctor Doctor by the Thompson Twins stands at three. Radio Gaga by Queen is this week's number and still at Frankie Goes to Hollywood with Relax which because of the nature of the lyric we don't think suitable for broadcasting I watched this morning have a fag and then make a cup of coffee didn't make me a bastard another fag then she rang her mother up and fucking slagged me off then another fag you know what she was waiting for Simon Bates Radio 1 hour tune do you listen to that girls and she sits there crying her fucking eyes out it was so funny the other day I taped it, I thought, I'll have to do this on stage. This was our- they began the car rally, but stopped for lunch in a wood. And after having lunch, they decided not to bother with the car rally. And there you are then. I'm sure you don't want me to exaggerate on what happened. They had a fuck. Just suffice it to say, they had a good time. So, they did the decent thing, and in October 1976, they got married, and they had all the things that young couples want. A large mortgage, the in-laws round every Sunday for lunch, and no baby talk. Until, after a few years, she got broody, did Moira, and in February 81, Victoria was born. And that's where the R tune comes in, because, in fairness, Steve isn't that slushy and sentimental, but Moira is. And this is what Moira saw. founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.